Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going all right. I've had a pretty busy week. How has your week been? Oh my god, it's been crazy. It's seriously, like I've been saying for a while, April's trying to kill me with good things, with work and things that pay me monies, which is good and all, but it's like, it's been a long month. So I'm looking forward to mid-May is when things get calm for me. How about you? Well, as opposed to you making monies, I'm shelling out monies because I'm in the process of, I secured an apartment to move across the country in six weeks. What? So yeah, it's exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> Th- though I must say you're, you're moving to a lovely part of the country, yes. but it's the wrong part of the country because it's not Chicago. No, it's not Chicago. No, it's uh, North Washington state. But you, I'll just get jealous of all your pictures that you'll be... If you're anything like... I have, I have a friend who moved to Portland, mm-hmm. um, and now he just is, like, insufferably posting pictures of gorgeous nature all the time. Louis, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of his views. And I'll do that from my apartment window. It'll be amazing. There you go. Yeah. No. Yep. I'll, and I'll send you all the updates from when I go on the Twilight Tours. <laughs> Somehow I'm not that concerned about about toilet tours. I feel like I'll be okay without that. But um, but yeah, it's been like we said a busy week. Um, the this coming week uh, on Saturday, I wanted to mention I'm going to be uh, speaking at a like a, a celebration of Star Trek at DePaul University in Chicago. There's a couple. There's a lot of different things going on, but that's going to be the first Saturday coming up here in May. And it's like an all-day thing. It's open to the public and it's free. So people in Chicago should come check it out if they are so inclined. I have a week to make myself an expert in uh, all things gender in Star Trek. I think that that I'll be that should be okay, right? Yeah, no weeks. You don't even need a week. You just need like two days. There's only like ninety films and a thousand like hours a worth things. of television. And I mean, that's <laughs> not even getting into the tie-in novels and the card games and the comic books. Yeah, no, you'll be fine. Fortunately, there's some actual like academics and people who've like written dissertations and books on the topic on the panels. So I'm just gonna, oh well, like... if you want to do like secondhand research, I mean, by all means. <laughs> um, the uh, so that's coming up on sa- this coming Saturday as we record, which should be a lot of fun if people want to check it out. Um, also, th- this week, of course, in the podcast, we were joined by a friend of the show, Jennifer Armstrong, to talk about the OC, which was a lot of fun. That's coming at the end of the show. Yeah, no, it was a terrific amount of fun because you and I hadn't seen it before, and Jennifer was a huge fan of the show, but it's a really, really great conversation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And and you saying yeah, no reminds me, uh, we got a comment over at... Uh, Facebook from Lisa who listens to the podcast and says it always makes her think of uh, Amy Poehler in the Georgia mom's shopping like New York funky sketch did you get a chance to watch that no I haven't seen this sketch you're gonna have to go check it out at the Televerse Facebook page because it's pretty fantastic all right I will do that after we record and thank you for listening, uh, Lisa, and for, for chiming in, because that was I had not seen the sketch, and it is it is delightful. Also, I should mention, uh, like we did later, at the end of the last podcast, but we are now officially up in Google Play, and we are up on Stitcher. So if you are so inclined, you can listen to the podcast on Stitcher. Um, please leave us a rating or a review over there that does help us on Stitcher, uh, because we're new to there, so... We don't. I think we don't really show up on searches and things until we have at least five reviews or something. 
I could be misinformed, but that's what I've been led to believe. So it would, if, if people are Stitcher users, that would be a helpful thing for the show. Um, but the last thing I need to mention up here at the top is because we, we're not going to talk about it during the podcast this week because we're on a tight schedule, first of all. And second of all, um, because you didn't get to see it, but just as a given, listeners, when I ask Noel for each section, what won your week in, fill in the blank, it should be understood that for me, what won my week in everything was Beyonce's Lemonade, which was amazing. Were you just so sad that you don't have HBO, Noel, or did you, like, find it online, like, on Tidal or something? No, none of it. Uh, I mean, had Corey Barker not mentioned it to me while we were texting, um, I wouldn't have even known what was happening because I wasn't on Twitter at that time, didn't know that it was happening. And if he hadn't said that it was some sort of Beyonce-related thing, people tweeting about Lemonade would have just left me really confused. <laughs> well, I was uh, I was in the middle of something else while it was happening, and I just started seeing all of these tweets about it. So uh, I figured out what it you know that it was the thing that was happening on HBO, and I flipped over to it about halfway through and went, "This is I don't really know what's going on, but this is amazing." And then I went back and started it again afterwards on HBO Go while it was still up over there, and I thought it was amazing. Everyone, uh, fantastic music, really great imagery, really well directed, really powerful topics, and just this wonderful celebration of of black womanhood in America that was I mean as a white girl you know from the suburbs it's not about me it's not for me but I thought it was just really powerful and beautiful and uh so I can't imagine what it must have been like for for people who this was more directly for to to respond with but I know that I thought it was amazing so I I just wanted to mention it here because it was on tv so it counts as a thing for TV, and I hear HBO is is trying to figure out a way to get awards based off of it. So we'll see what happens with that. Right? No, they're they're going to probably submit it as a variety special at the Emmys, so that it can win all of the Emmys. Hey, if it helps Beyonce towards an EGOT, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> That's true. She 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 can get pretty close to that then. Yep. Um, well, like I said earlier, we are on a tight budget. As we learned last week, uh, drinking Nolan Kate are talkative Nolan Kate. So this week we're going to yes. try to keep things a little more pared down. Wish us luck, listeners. Um, so now we'll dive right into our week in TV. So we'll take a break, listen to some music, and be back with our week in comedy and reality. comedy i'm going to talk a bit about the veep premiere morning after the silicon valley premiere founder friendly and then nolan and i are both going to talk some carmichael show the blues blackish the johnson's show and jane the virgin chapter 41 then we'll switch over and talk a little reality with the amazing race salt that sand it feels like the right way to to say it i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to kick things off here with comedies and that means for me veep uh, which had its season five premiere morning after 
Now, uh, as as fans of Veep will know, Armando Inucci, who created the show, left uh, stepped down as showrunner at the end of last season. So I'm sure there were some people who were kind of tentative about will this new person taking over, David Mandel, uh, do a good job? Will he be able to capture the voice? And I think uh, he did a really great job. This is a really strong premiere. We come back from the election night sort of cliffhanger of a tied electoral uh, situation for Selena Meyer. Um, and, and we just, we don't, I love that they didn't skip forward in time. They didn't um, like flash forward to all of a sudden there's a new setup at the White House. It's no, we're going to make this entire season be about there's an electoral college tie. So it's a legit way to stretch out an election arc to be two seasons instead of one, um, which because there's such an awareness from the show of how ridiculous this is. I love Selena has a line about didn't those founding fuckers ever hear of an odd number, which is something I think we all have thought when looking at electoral college math. I don't know. Noel, have you thought of that? Yes, I have. It's, it's probably a good idea that we, we would have done that. Yeah. The, the, the give DC a, an electoral college vote and there Hi. you go. That takes care of it. But Anyway, uh, there's a lot of really fun one-liners here. The whole group, uh, the, the the writing captures their voices in a way that's really effective. Um, the performers are all great. It's, it's like the deepest bench on TV as far as cast goes, uh, sp- certainly comedy cast. And they, I just, they did a really good job uh, with this premiere. It sets up a really clear framework for what the season is going to be. I'm looking forward to that. They just... They kind of fudge some stuff to get the team back together, but I, I would rather they do that in the premiere than kind of stretch it out and have, you know, people in different factions based on decisions last season when we know that this is what they were headed towards anyway. So I'm okay with some of the stuff that goes down with Amy and Dan ending up back on Team Meyer so quickly. Um, on the whole, though, really funny premiere. Laughed out loud just consistently, and I'm back covering it week to week over at the AV Club so people can get my fuller thoughts on it over there. And I just, I love the comments for the Veep reviews the av club because it's just people saying their favorite quotes from the episode and there's always so many i can't possibly include them all in my review so i just kind of go hover in the comments and just enjoy the ridiculous dialogue that that just is what beep is so um yeah it was a really strong premiere i'm looking forward to the season and uh, like i talked about last week a bit uh, as well but it's just I, I can't get over some <laughs> some of the dialogue they were giving these characters to say as they as they always do. I mean, Gary like Gary deciding that the uh, the new Secret Service agent smells nothing like Selena. I don't know how anyone could possibly think that she could uh, be mistaken for her. It's just ridiculous and creepy and delightful in all the best ways. So Veep is back and it's back as strong as it's been in, in a while. Um, Next up is Silicon Valley, which had its premiere Founder Friendly, um, which, again, deals with the cliffhanger sort of or the end of the last season pretty well. It, this one didn't strike me quite as strongly as the Veep premiere did, but I did enjoy it quite a bit. They do a good job of, again, moving forward from the the end of last season. They've brought in Stephen Tobolowsky to be a recurring character, which, I mean, he's awesome, so that should work well. Um and I like where they have the characters, at least for now. There's a little bit of strife between some of the characters that I think will be able to be mined for some effective comedy. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's a strong one to comedy block for HBO. And 
very much in, enjoy it. Now we're going to throw, I'm tired of talking. I'm, t- I'm doing too much talking, Noel. Uh, so we're going to throw it to the Carmichael show and the blues. Uh, I thought this was a step up. Uh, like, I really liked this episode. And mostly, I just loved that they gave Maxine a win for once. What did you think about this episode? Uh, no, I, I agree in that it was a, <clears throat> a really strong episode and a very strong setup. And while you were reveling in a Maxine uh, win, I was reveling in the fact that Loretta Devine is going to get another Emmy. Um, she was just really fantastic this week. They gave her a lot of really good material to do as they explored what depression means and the taboos around discussing that within their family, but with also just through them as a family, through the black community at large. And it was just a really powerful episode, And but it was still really deeply funny. Like, the whole climax of it being... I don't know what I get at Wendy's, but I can't wait to find out, basically. It's just so specific, but so but funny and touching all in the same sort of, like, bundle that I just couldn't get over how good it was. Yeah, I thought it worked really well. And like you say, uh, Loretta Devine's performance was really strong. I also really like the idea, but it they, they, they kind of implied this, but I would have even liked a more specific, uh, you know, engagement with the idea that the blues is depression. Yeah. And that's okay. So when any song, when somebody's singing about having the blues, they're saying I'm depressed and using its tech, it's like clinical term. It does not change anything. Um, it just may- maybe allows people to um, get a stronger handle on what they're experiencing and, and maybe relate. But um, I, I really, I really keyed into that idea that like, depression is not some new thing that's only been around recently. It's just, it's a new name for an idea that, has been around as long as certainly as long as there's been American music well, you know, yeah. and going back through time. Right. And not even like through American music is like the concept of the blues, but I mean, just ill humors and that sort of thing. I mean, we've had it forever mm-hmm. and we just have given it different names throughout history. But yeah, the specificity, like you say, of the, the Wendy's ending worked really well. It was really powerful. I love and, and this shows you what uh, having a live studio audience can do yes. for a show because the giant share is just so cathartic. As she as she leaves to go to Wendy's, but then I also love the button of the rest of them going to a different Wendy's. Yes, <laughs> and like the fact that they've gone, they go to Wendy's frequently enough that they know which one she's going to. Yes, so they can go. They know they'll go to a different one. I just enjoyed the like you said the specificity of all of that. It was a strong episode. Yes, very strong. And I mean, now I want Wendy's and a frosty and some fries to dip into that frosty. Again, that's where I was on Sunday, yeah. too. There you go. Um, let's move on to our next show, and that is Blackish, the Johnson show. I mean, I think there's a nice parallel here because we were a little underwhelmed with, at least I was certainly, with the the, the Carmichael show's take on Cosby. Yes. Um, but I actually was I was really um, appreciative of, and I really enjoyed the way the, that Blackish engaged with the idea of, of not so much Cosby, but the Cosby show. Yeah. And... And that that central idea, while also giving the characters lots of other things to to to, to explore and really engage with, uh, how'd you feel about the, uh, the Johnson show? I really really enjoyed it. Um, my concern with talking about it is that I read Latoya Ferguson's really excellent review over at uh, TV Club, where you also write, and I'm worried I'm just going to repeat it verbatim because Latoya's insights were spot on and perfect. But It's a really terrific episode about basically how the Johnsons and how the Cosby show 
um, reflect this idea of doing twice as much to get half as far, basically, within society. So there's this really great back and forth um, regarding how Dre and Bo respond to people saying, oh, you have a really nice family, or wow, look at you, you're such a great mom. And seeing how that get those kind of comments get reflected through their perception of what their lives are like and that sort of thing is was really, really powerful. And so to then tie it back into this idea of one person can screw all this up for us, i.e. talking about Cosby, um, <clears throat> was a really powerful statement without it actually being super on the nose. It was really, really subtle, I thought. And it was also just still really, really funny. So we've got like plenty of stuff like with Ruby turning the kids into gift card thieves. But then also <laughs> the ridiculous names that they came up with for the gift card baskets just killed me every time. Um, Float is like a butterfly, stink like a brie, man. That was so great. <laughs> um, so... So yes, it was it was a really really good episode and really thoughtful and like you said at the upstart at the start of this, it's very much a better way of thinking about Cosby without having to directly 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 address Cosby. And we also, you know, got them reenacting the co- one of the Cosby openings and that's never that's never a bad thing for anything to do. Uh so what did you think? What did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it too and the what I particularly enjoyed about it, and like you said, Latoya's review over at the AV Club is is really spot on, and people can go check that out if they uh, want even more discussion about about the episode. But um, I was able to, and maybe again, maybe this is just very white, very pale, you know, my lens and perspective uh, on this episode. I was able to just kind of enjoy it as a really funny episode. And then dive into it more and really pick it apart and think about the sociological like statements it was making and this this difference in how in, in perception and and their experiences and the characters' experiences um, versus you know because because I think there are some very universal elements here like of not wanting to be thought of as thieves and not you know like nobody uses gift cards anyway they're a terrible gift and like this all these different ideas that the episode is playing with. And so I think that's very accessible to pretty much anybody watching. But then there's all this extra layers of meaning and and depth that is there because this is the Johnsons and not a different family. And and that ability to work on both levels, I think, is something that I particularly appreciated about this episode. And and when we have the the cuts to the different moms and uh, Bo's perception of it, I love that it's... And, and Latoya touches on this in her review. Those characters and also Bo and, Dro- and Dre are heightened enough that that might not be what the other moms are saying or intending at all, but that's what Bo's hearing. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing invalid about that. So just because maybe these other people, like, we don't know, maybe they are completely intending that sub- subtext, but maybe they're not. And even if they're not, that doesn't change that doesn't change Bo's experience. Correct. And I, I, I think the way that the show engages with that and doesn't give you, like, doesn't just make the, the other moms cook, cookie cutter racist figures, just like, who, who knows if they even realize that this is how they're being perceived and how this is coming across. And it's not necessarily a strength of Bo that she sees this either. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. This is just her life experience. Yeah. 
and and uh, I just I I really it's just the treatment of of that in the episode was really effective and like you said it's just really funny when when, when Ruby comes in with as she's gone to get the blowout for her hair <laughs> I just love it Pops just kind of appearing out of the somewhere I was like I've missed you Pops I, I miss Pops too but you know we kind of buried the lead with the big thing about this episode Charlie's back I know right how exciting it's so exciting. <laughs> I must say, it would be nice if Charlie uh, could have a scene with Wanda Sykes. Oh, that would be wonderful. I need that to happen. Hopefully that's next week. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Any other thoughts on this episode? No, just it was it was very, very solid. Very, very funny. Yeah. Well, then let's move on to our next very solid, very funny episode. And that's Jane the Virgin, Chapter 41, or as I call it, the one with all those awesome 20s flashbacks. And I love Jane's 20s getup. It looks so awesome. It's a long title, but I think an effective one. I loved Petra's 1920s getup because it was so perfectly Petra. Mm-hmm. No, so uh, this week we had, um, because Rogelio was um, traveling to the Depression-era United States to go woo that lesbian away from Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so that FDR would reenact the New Deal when he ran for president. <laughs> um, there were all these 1920s silent film cutaway bits. Um, but no, this episode was really jam-packed with a lot of really good stuff. And one really bizarre thing that I did not like, um, in part because it just kind of, even for me, stretched believability. But we can get to that and just talk about how awesome everything is. But I think the first thing that we need to discuss, Kate, is how much the narrator was acknowledging telenovela tropes in this episode like blatantly uh, blatantly talking about them and you and i both had the same thought of oh god michael's gonna die isn't he we all know where this is heading (laughs) totally gonna die yeah they could not have been like more upfront with in case you've forgotten this is a telenovela and we've i've already told you that michael had a strong career and loved jane until the day he died if he's going to fix his career and die by the end of the season. Yep, and I'm going to be sad because despite... Yeah. This is an unpopular opinion, I know, among many people, but I've always kind of been Team Michael. And now I was just like, oh, that's going to be sad. Now I'm going to have to be sad. And Jane's going to be <laughs> sad. But no, so... But apart from that, and even though through all of that, it was still really, really funny... Um, the narrator is touching on stuff, but there's still plenty of other things to really like about this. Like you said, the 1920s flashbacks are really well done. I mean, they're over slightly exaggerated 19 silent film riffs, but what 1920s silent films riff aren't exaggerated at this point. So they're, they're both, they're all really, really funny. Solid use of the inner title cards. Um, my heart kind of broke for Helio a little bit. Totally. Judy Reyes, what are you doing? I know, but it was it was so... I hate saying that it was so nice to see Rogelio get his heart broken like that, but it kind of was. Just like, my heart broke, but at the same time, I liked him being... experiencing it in, like, a different kind of setting of thinking, oh, well, Zoe has a perfectly legitimate reason. I understand that. I accept that. But this, this woman just wants to be casual with me. I don't understand this. It's me, Rogelio. <laughs> And it's just really, really fun. It was really heartbreaking, but really funny and just all sorts of really great stuff in that episode. What else did you like about uh, Chapter 41? Well, the part that actually I, I, I liked what we got with with Petra's sister and Jane, like her being a terrible waitress, a server. Yeah. 
Like it that yeah, that really that worked for me. But I'm a little leery about how they seem to be using her, which is we can't keep having Petra do mean stuff to Jane. So let's bring in the twin sister. Right. Who can be the bad guy. How does she know <laughs> to write an ad to the school newspaper to advertise an essay writing service would cause problems for her at college? How does she know? At a U.S. college. She should not know that. She should not know that. And yet she spent three hours typing out a little want ad email. And I don't know how she knows that. And it kind of it bothered me a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I should say. Uh, I did really just enjoy the physicality of, yeah. of her Hudson Peck typing. Yes, it was very, very funny. But I think your point about um, them saying that Petra couldn't do anything else, so they bought in the twin sister who looks exact, who obviously looks exactly like Petra, is really spot on. And I'm trying now that you've said that, I'm really trying to figure out if they they're just kind of like meta aware of that and just are like running with it, or if they're just like type of thing about it do you think that they pay no attention yeah okay <laughs> yeah i don't know we'll see we'll see but i because i i actually really like the idea of of them being super tight and like it, it jane actually uh, really bonding with petra's sister and actually having more in common with petra's sister and then that adding a interesting wrinkle um but I don't know. We'll see what they do. We, we trust these writers. Yes. We also had this week the essay writing, and we had Michael getting fired, right, okay. and we had the the trust for the different kids. I really liked Raphael being like, uh, yeah, no offense, and you're not allowed to be offended at this, but uh, I trust Jane way more than I trust you, and I have to be an idiot not to. Right, and I mean, that, that, that was a really big, like, kind of moment, and I think Petra generally handled it pretty well because the episode started listing all the horrible things she's done <laughs> yeah like framed for domestic abuse framed for sleeping with a hooker covered up uh, pushing a bullet on the stairs like yeah yeah no and then the narrator's just like i don't have time for this people don't like reading stuff on tv which is so funny Ugh. Mm -hmm. um so no that that aspect of it was really was really funny and then just the Jane trying to figure out, like, how to balance everything I thought was really great. And, yeah, no, it was a really, really, really strong episode. Yeah. Our next show here for Comedy and Reality is The Amazing Race. Salt That Sand! And uh, I I gotta be honest, I was really rooting for Brody and Kurt to get eliminated this week for two reasons. First of all, because it would have been hilarious. And second of all, because they just they have completely mismanaged how you do the... the you know, like how you choose which teammate is going to do the roadblocks, question mark, I think it's called, or detour. Anyway, Either way. Whichever I, one. You should know better than I should. I should, and I don't, and that's just on me. <laughs> um, for that reason, but also because props where it's due, that challenge with the sand looked freaking hard. And those teams, they were like champs getting through it. And as soon as they had the, the Kings show up and... You know, the, it's the only team where the guy or the who, person who appears to be more physically capable doesn't do it. Um, she was a champ and got, got through that, man. I, like, I was really hoping there'd be an upset there. Yes, the sand stuff was, like, really just brutal to watch, um, mainly because they, they were so excited that they had such a lead and everything, and then it just, like, steadily collapsed on them. 
Um, at the same time, I loved the fact that now everyone knows Brody and Kurt just blew their express pass on the silly puzzle. Yeah. At, um, and now they're just like, oh, well, these guys aren't so much of a big deal anymore because now the challenges are actually getting kind of difficult and even they're struggling with them. Uh, so I really enjoyed like Brody just struggling with the kite. Those kites him... were awesome, by the way. They looked so great. And it was really nice to just see basically Brody and Kurt really struggle with that and everyone else just kind of really like go through it really quickly. Uh, but like you, I was really hoping for an el- for them to get eliminated. I was just like kind of wishing and hoping and then it didn't happen and I was sad. <laughs> yeah, but this was just a lot of like really good challenges this week, I thought, um, that kept me really involved. And I'm we have, what, two legs left? Yeah, um, we're down to five, so um, it should be... There should be two more left, I think. Um, I also, okay. props to Sherry for being like, oh, no, it's a snake. No, dude, I, I got this. Snake? Whatever. Who cares? I'm on this. Oh, God. Oh, God. The sn- uh, I had repressed the snakes because <laughs> I would not have been able to do that. You would have been Rachel and Zach, understand. like, losing it? I would have... I would have lost it completely. Never mind that those snakes weigh as much as I do, <laughs> but that th- I do not. I do not do snakes, Kate. I do not do snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I thought that was such a like. I, I, I thought that was a really creative way to do that because again, most people. Um, I was actually surprised so few people had a significant issue. Yes, I was too. I was just like, oh, we're going to make Britney Spears jokes. No, we need to make, we need to deal with the fact that you guys have snakes around your necks. (laughs) Oh, good times. Good times. Well, uh, what wins your week in comedy and reality, Noel? I think I will give it to Jane the Virgin this week. Uh, Just for, just shake things up. Uh, Blackish and Carmichael show both had really strong episodes, but I really, really loved pretty much everything that was happening in Jane the Virgin. I haven't really, really loved everything that was happening in Jane the Virgin for a while. So I'm going to give it to them this week. Uh, But you're giving it to Lemonade, so we can just move on to the next category. (laughs) Lemonade (laughs) wins of the week in TV. The week in comedy, I'm going to give it to Veep, uh, because Selena, she's the LBJ queen, and Hugh Laurie is Sergeant Suckett Shriver. Uh, and I'm so happy that they're back in my weekly life. So that will wrap up our week in comedy and reality. We'll take a break now and come back with our week in genre. This week in genre, I'm going to talk a bit about the Game of Thrones premiere, The Red Woman, uh, Outlander, Useful Occupations and Deceptions, Orphan Black, The Stigmata of Progress, and then Noel and I will have thoughts. Yes, 
thoughts is a kind way to put it about the flash back to normal arrow canary cry and legends of tomorrow leviathan before change in tone shall we say and and talk a little adventure time i am a sword so first up a few thoughts on the game of thrones premiere um game of thrones is back uh, as has been loudly and repeatedly pronounced by the showrunners john snow is dead that doesn't mean any of us think he's gonna stay dead but whatever it's good that they immediately start with no he's for reals he's dead y'all um the the episode on the whole i thought worked but game of thrones usually is a little slow to get started um we had some really great stuff with brienne uh, but a lot of the the different parts of the episode i was supposed to be really investing in it just felt like i was supposed to be investing in such as uh, brienne's moment with sansa or jamie and cersei's scene together i was a I wasn't as connected to as I think they wanted me to be. I was all about Brienne being a badass pod also, you know, putting up a fight too and helping out. Uh, but I just, it really irritated me that when Brienne offers her services as a knight to Sansa, she looks over at Theon to get his okay before she accepts Brienne. It's like, are you shitting me right now? Show? It's like, yeah, okay. He helped her out and everything. But no, she does not need Reek's approval to accept the help of badass Lady Brienne of Tarth. WTF mate, not a fan. But the rest of the scene I did really enjoy. Um, Cersei and Jamie, it's really hard for me to invest in their, like, getting, we're gonna regain everything we've lost. It's like, except that you can't regain the two children that are dead. So when you're saying this, Jamie, it feels really empty because nothing can give you back your children. And there's another one who's probably up next. Um, so there's that. Uh, the stuff in Dorne uh, was, I guess, interesting that they're changing things up. But again, it just feels like such a waste of our time all the time we had spent there because they just killed all the characters who were in power. Why did we spend time with those characters when they didn't do anything on the show? Underwhelming. Um, and sort of underwhelming some of the other scenes we had to. And again, it's just a lot of setup. But the one scene that I do, I do think has been appropriately hyped is the end of episode scene we get with Melisandre. Um, revealing that she's actually a, like a withered 200-year-old person. It's just like bent and scraggly hair and really ancient looking. Uh, that was a great way to end the episode, and I'm really intrigued with where they're going to take her next. So mixed, not as positive as everybody else seems to be about the Red Woman, but there is some interesting stuff going on, and we'll see how they develop. I probably won't check in on Game of Thrones every week because you don't watch it, Noel, but um, if people want me to talk about Game of Thrones, please drop a line. Like, you know, post at the website if, if you're interested in Game of Thrones talk, you know, in a comparatively regular basis as we move forward. Uh, Outlander, useful occupations and deceptions. I wasn't going to mention Outlander this week since I mentioned it last week, except then, Noel. Okay, so Claire has a new friend. Okay. Who's a, who's a nun who runs a hospital. Okay. And her new friend, the nun. Is this in the 40s or in the. No, no. Back in time. Yeah. Her new friend, the nun, is buddies with a little-known composer, Bach, (gasps) Johann Sebastian Bach, who, yeah, exactly, at the time, would have been little-known. He wasn't, like, he got, he became a huge sensation, like, throughout Europe and everything later on. He was actually kind of forgotten to time until Mendelssohn, like, brought him back into popularity um, and made, sort of standardized playing Bach as, like, a thing everybody does and really, you know, championed his genius so, so she, she's like, oh, I'm surprised you've heard of him. And and uh, Claire's all like, jaw on floor. Um, <laughs> and then 
And then wait for it. There's a bit of like code that's written in sheet music and they're trying to figure out what it's about. So they ask her about it because she can play. Yeah. And she's like, you know, it's really similar to this piece of friend. I've got this friend who's composer uh, Bach and he uh, like and hence jaw. Um, and this is really similar to, to another piece that he sent me. And she starts playing the Goldberg variations. Noel. She's got a buddy who's who's like tight with Bach, and the Goldberg variations is a key plot point in this episode. This episode was written for me. Or me, but especially for you. Yes, or you, but also you don't actually watch the show. No. So I'm gonna say it's written for me. There's also some really fantastic, again, costuming. Anybody who listens who knows Tom and Lorenzo listens to their podcast. If you don't listen to their podcast, I should say, you should go check it out because there's an interview with the costume designer. On Outlander for this like an hour long interview or something. It's really great on their most recent episode of the Pop Style Opinion Fest. So go check that out uh, at Tom Lorenzo if you are at all curious about this stuff. But another another really strong episode. They keep developing some of the stuff with Sandringham and, oof, man, Mary Hawkins and that reveal with what her future looks like it might be. That's a, that's some intense intense stuff going down on Outlander. But uh, yeah, I was like. I was in my happy place because it's Bach and it's Goldberg and yay. Um, so so Outlander, really enjoying it. Next up is Orphan Black. I'll keep this one, again, brief as much as I can. Um, really enjoying what they're doing this season. The stuff with like the cheek implant thing is really creepy and really effective. I like that it, sound, it seems like Monkey's a little tired of being abandoned by her mother constantly to go fight random things and... And even her, you know, even Mrs. S keeps taking off to do stuff and she's just kind of left with whatever clone is around. Seems like she's a little over this and she really, she wants her dad back and she wants stability back. And so the fact that they aren't going to be able to just keep pushing the kid off on somebody, you know, without that affecting the kid is a really nice uh, development that's really subtly handled. I like that they're also having Fee explore his you know, who he is outside of Sarah and the rest of the clones. So that's working well. And Mazlani continues to be amazing. So really enjoying the way that they're re- recouping from what came before. And the, just the comedy of Allison and Donnie digging up the guy that they killed accidentally and buried in, and, then, and then hid the body in their garage <laughs> under the cement. Um, yeah, that was there were some really nice comedy beats there. You wouldn't think comedy beats, but it worked. So well Why done. Why did they need to dig up the body? Because he had a the cheek worm implant thingy too, okay. the one that got put into Sarah, and so they're like, wait, if all the neolutionists have this, would it be helpful for you to if we had one? And so they they gotcha. get a jackhammer, di- you know, break through the concrete, dig it up, and so they're they're gonna that way they can hopefully try to get this thing that can eat at any time kill Sarah out of her cheek. Super super gross. Excellent body horror this season on Orphan Black. A much more effective way to take this season. Um, so yes, so Orphan Black. Let's move on though. I need to get some. Uh, I need to get some water here, while you talk about the Flash back to normal. Right. So Flash back to normal this week uh, dealt with Barry not having his speed and what that speed, what that lack of speed meant for him and all this stuff. Except for the fact that the episode really didn't want to engage in any of that in any really substantial way. And instead did a metahuman parallel episode where uh, this guy who got super strength uh, no longer wanted it because every time he used his strength, he aged a little bit. And so you get a parallel plot where 
metahuman doesn't want his powers and wants to be normal, and Barry as metahuman wants his powers back so he doesn't have to be normal anymore. And that's an interesting idea that the show just goes, yeah, uh, let's not really engage in that in any way, shape, or form, and instead, um, here's some dwarf star alloy that we're gonna hand wave that Felicity gave us real quick so that we could let this guy punch himself to death? Yeah, that's okay, right? Pay no attention to the moral ambiguity there. Right, no, so this episode was just a massive mess. I was really, really disappointed with it. I was pretty harsh um, towards the episode in my review of it at uh, TV.com. But basically, I was really, really frustrated by the fact that a Barry who's frustrated that he doesn't have his powers is basically the same as a Barry that's frustrated about XYZ. There's no difference about it. He's still kind of mopey and wondering who he is, but he always wonders who he is when he's like mopey and depressed about something. There's no specificity to this particular character beat. And I was just really frustrated because the opening is so good. It's just like, here's Barry on a usual day and here's how great it feels to be Barry Allen on a usual day. And then here's Barry Allen on a day without his speed, and he's down here with the rest of us. And it's just, explore that. Deal with that. Deal with the fact that Barry's life is different now. And let's not go back to, hey, you know how we're going to solve this problem, Kate? We're going to blow up the particle accelerator again. (laughs) No, stop blowing up the particle accelerator. Just stop. Find something else to get you out of your corners. Please show. Now, speaking of corners, and because I'm assuming you've rehydrated, we should probably talk about the corner that the show's written itself into with Zoom and the man in the Iron Mask. Yeah, so watching this episode, um, about like the 30 second, maybe maybe minute mark, I was like, oh, son of a beasting, we've been idiots. Of course, we know who's the the man in the mask. Uh, and, and this episode really makes it pretty clear, as far as I'm concerned, because they highlight that Zoom, meaning Jay, is obsessed with Caitlyn. So that gives him motive to want Ronnie not to be around, you know, the, the love of Caitlyn's life. Um, so because we never saw a body, we saw him disappear into the worm, like into the, the singularity that we know ripped holes to Earth 2. It would not surprise, it, w- it would actually be odd to me if that wasn't Ronnie behind the mask. And the reason that his face is covered up is because he's from Earth One and other people that Zoom has been interacting with, such as uh, the the Alt Killer Frost, right? Uh, alt Caitlin would recognize Ronnie, um, and so that's why that's he's in a mask. It's a stretch, but at least it's slightly less of a stretch than so just so the audience won't know who he is. Right. What do you think? I, I like the idea that it's Ronnie um, a lot. Um, I think that's too much of the stretch for the mask for me personally, because mm-hmm. I think that they would have just been able. I mean, they all know that Zoom goes to other worlds, so why would having a doppelganger around really confuse them any? Um, so I still, I still need that mask to have a narrative purpose, and I'm not sure that's strong enough of a narrative purpose for me. Fair enough. But on the other hand, like, no one knew who it was until the finale because Teddy Sears was making a big deal about the fact that he didn't know who it was until the finale, so. Well, fair enough. Um, I, I feel like, well, maybe, maybe maybe Teddy Sears didn't watch the show before he got cast <laughs> in it. Well, because, like, they, you know, when you're an actor on a show, they have really long days. Right. It's very they possible. Do. 
So, but I feel like the cast should have been able to figure this one out. Like, if if we've cor- correctly figured it out, that's a big assumption on my part. It just makes too much sense to me to not think that we figured it out. Um, then I feel like some of the cast should have gotten it. But we'll see. At least that we know that they're going to actually tell us in the finale and not stretch it yes. out until the, the next season. Um, the only other thing I have on this episode is I would have really liked to see at least a slight indication of something positive for Barry now that he doesn't have his abilities even if it's just hey well you know what this sucks but at least i can get drunk right now you know like there's there've got to be slight ways in which it's actually kind of nice to be normal um even if he can't really see it you can have somebody else call you know like try to connect with him on that front i was just looking forward to this is the only opportunity we're gonna have to 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 have barry actually go out to the bars um which i feel like is something he probably did before he got his superpowers you think he would like that side effect, but I don't know. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I would have loved that. I think the problem was is that Caitlin had been kidnapped, so there wasn't really any time for for, That's true. Uh, for frivolity. Uh, but I mean, he does go out to clubs and bars all the time. Like, yeah, so he goes. He goes. But, he just yeah, no... can't get drunk. <laughs> yep, he can't get drunk. But he's pretty goofy anyway without the alcohol. So, touche. Well, speaking of goofy, how do we feel about? Arrow, Canary Cry. Oh, okay. So while I was really mean to Flash is because I expected better from Flash um, than what I got this week. From Arrow, I was a little more tempered in my review, but that was largely because I just expect Arrow to screw up shit. Um, So this week, um, while they tried to, uh, while they went through the ramifications of Laurel's death or apparent death or however the show's going to end up playing this, uh, the show attempted to convince us that Laurel had some sort of legacy that it needed to protect. And I promptly went, oh, that's great show. Try selling me a bridge in another state. Uh, <laughs> since Laurel hasn't had a storyline since m- the, the barest of storylines since the middle of season three. And since then, she's been in the background. So sorry, this idea that she has a legacy as Black Canary that we're aware of is laughable. It may have happened off screen while Oliver was recovering from being stabbed with a sword and then kicked off a mountain. Oh, that's a thing that happened. And (laughs) so that idea is ridiculous. But then this idea that Laurel as a district attorney of star city had a legacy. I just went, no, no show. She's been in court twice. (laughs) And one of those times was to prosecute Maura queen where there was a massive conflict of interest. So no, show you don't get to tell me that Laurel has a legacy that exists off screen for me. And yeah, so I can keep talking, but tell me how at least you felt about that aspect of the episode and maybe you found something good in this episode that I didn't. I actually kind of liked this idea of of demasking Black Canary as like a tribute okay. to the I actually thought that was really really great, except She's a DA. And that's going to throw every case that she prosecuted into appeals. And there are apparently so many of those cases that she was so great at. Yeah, but it's like, wait, 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 wait. you mean she's one of those vigilante who, vigilantes who's been going around beating people up, forcing confessions, uh, for all they know, doctoring evidence, and all of that evidence is the evidence that then she used to get to prosecute people? Are you kidding me? Massive conspiracy cover-up. Like, every person she put behind bars would have grounds for appeal, if not, you know, release. 
Uh, so that would massively actually undo her legacy. So while I liked the idea of not uh, of honoring her and saying, yeah, you guys think you know how great she was. She was actually even better. That doesn't work when she's the DA. If she was like a, if she was like a, like a regular civilian or like a defense attorney or something, I don't know, like where she was contributing in ways that didn't she wasn't directly involved in the legal element then i think it yeah. would work but so that i was sort of that made me torn about it but it, it just it felt like something different to do a different way to tr- do a tribute to a character so and it just again it's not doing the no one can know which i appreciate the only thing i have on this episode my only thought on it is clearly i was wrong i thought it was going to be like a cover up because of the way that they shot her death it felt super yeah. weird and like like, they were going to undo it in some way. It was going to be, like, a ruse. And based on this, that is not the case. So I'm very confused as to why they felt like, promise me one thing, cut away. Then, like, mysteriously and conveniently, you know, like, ten seconds later, all of a sudden she's flatlining. Almost like she's like, help me fake my death. Pull out that core right there and we'll get me out of here. Um, so that just feels very odd to me, that choice from the writing. Does, is that bothering you at all? I mean, the entire thing is bothering me, and the fact that just as Guggenheim and Miracle have said that death just means something different now than it did even last season, uh, just kind of makes me antsy about how they're going to do this. Um, At the same time, I just really need Laurel to stay dead so that Quentin Lance can Mm -hmm. have a moment of peace, because, I mean, first off, tip tip of the hat to Paul Blackthorne, because the man's amazing. And his scene where he's just breaking down outside the League of Assassins uh, safe house is just gut-wrenchingly terrible um, in its sheer, like, emotional honesty. But I just, I need her to stay dead so that Quentin can just not be totally screwed up for the rest of his life. Because he's buried his two daughters three times now. (laughs) Which isn't, which isn't correct. Um, The only other thing I'll say about this is... um, while I enjoyed the idea of this tribute and everything to Laurel, I was really frustrated that so much of how they were attempting to honor her was still very much about advancing Diggle and Oliver as characters, which is just like, oh, right, forgot, there aren't enough women characters on this show. <laughs> Great, so, right, so Diggle's angry and he's going to get through his emotions by coming to terms with the fact that Sarah, Sarah that Laurel wouldn't want him to do this and Oliver's going to take all the burden onto himself to go kill kill Damien and yeah no it was just it was it was rough yep well it was rough she died for man pain that's why she died yep and because it would give us the most shock for the episode according to Mark Guggenheim which was stellar choice yeah that's there yeah that's never a good idea for at least as far as I'm concerned personally like my philosophy of, of storytelling that's not a good reason to do a no, story it's not but it's not Anyways, let's move on to the next show, which is Legends of Tomorrow, Leviathan. I have one thing to say about this, which is... Let's hear it. Now, we both play D&D. We're both fans of Dungeons & Dragons. We like a one-shot or a continuing campaign, yes? I'm playing tomorrow, in fact. Yeah. We've we've, we've all done that. We've, we've played uh, some, some video games. We've played some Zelda, some Mario Brothers. Uh, we've watched Buffy. We've watched pretty much... Any genre show inspired by Buffy, which is most of them since that time. Yeah. Have you read Harry Potter? 
Yeah. And like it's many, many antecedents, including, of course, a big thing like Lord of the Rings. What do all of these games and storytelling have in common? You do little boss, little boss, bigger boss, big bad. You don't just keep going up against the big bad every week and losing because it's crappy storytelling. It's, your characters need to level up over time. They need to get stronger. They need to get smarter. They need to get better. They need to find the thing that lets them find the thing that lets them find the thing that actually lets them take down the bad guy. And what Legends of Tomorrow has been doing all season is saying, okay, now we're going to find him, take him down this time. Oh, look, it didn't work. And in this episode, it's episode 13. We know there are 16 episodes. You're like, we're going to get him for reals this time, guys. And I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not because it's episode 13. So you can't get him for reals. I know as soon as you begin this episode, when, if your goal in this episode is to take down, take him down, this is the time you can finally do it, that you will fail and it is not narratively interesting. You're not clearly going to learn anything from this because you haven't all season. So as soon as that is the goal of the episode, I'm checked out. And it's just really frustrating because it's such a basic, such a basic concept. You do the the level like the level one bad guy then the level two bad guy then the level three bad guy and then maybe you can jump up to level five level six and that's your big bad you don't just keep going up against the same bad guy every week and losing until the time that it works is the time where there aren't any episodes left right and see i agree with all of that except for the fact that i actually found this episode significantly more interesting than all the other vandal savage episodes mm-hmm. have previously been um, so, and I wrote a lot about this in my review of this episode in discussing, base, laying out basically what you just laid out about how the fact that the show, because of how it's structured, they keep going further back in time because they allegedly have some sort of edge against Vandal Savage, except for the fact that we know that they can't win, not only because of just episodes, episode number that they're on, but also just because time doesn't change uh on this show it keeps it time wants to happen as it keeps reminding us so things can speed up things can kind of slow down but they can't really change too often so they were never going to win and so it was there were never any incremental victories that happened against the big bad in any way shape or form uh being vandal savage this uh, in this show so that made them look bad but it also made vandal savage look just really boring and doll and that was also has been really flummoxing so this week vandal they go to vandal in the future for only the second time because since the 1980s they've only gone after him in the future once because they didn't want to like tip their hand because he might be prepared for them and this he was prepared for them in the best way possible that kept him alive so when we talk about when you discuss like oh well they can't obviously beat him this time because there's still three episodes left absolutely yes you're correct but for me, the fact that he had a plan this time in regards to keeping himself alive made a world of difference in how I responded to it, basically. So that he had a brainwashed Carter Hall as basically an ace up his sleeve, I thought was really, really fun and really interesting and really tactful because Vandal's always supposed to be this really smart mastermind kind of tactician. And it's just been, oh, I'm going to do werehawks and financing and a soviet firestorm and i mean guys come on do something else with him and so that he had something to do that he had some agency in this i thought was really really interesting and really really fascinating and 
the way that it put Rip and Kendra in a bind with one another, I thought was really good as well. All of that being said, the fact that it took that they couldn't figure out a way to do this prior to this episode is really, really frustrating. And I think demonstrates the limits of what this show can do given the structure that it had this season. So maybe next season is a little more, we're just going to travel through time and have some fun and do crazy shit and basically just Doctor Who the hell out of this. And then we can kind of enjoy it and maybe there's some sort of weird arc going on with Booster Gold or whatever Patrick J. Adams is going to do. And we'll find out what that is. But I I actually really like Leviathan. So even though I'm in complete agreement with everything you just said. Well, I'm glad one of us did. So at least there's that. <laughs> let's, talk, let's move on, though, to an episode that we're more positive on. Or at least that I'm more positive on. And that's Adventure oh, God, Time. I am a sword. Uh, you, I think you are even more positive on this than I am. I really like this episode. I have a feeling you loved this episode. Why don't you take it away? Um. Okay, so I loved this episode because it made me gasp out loud that a sword died. Like, I, I just... Fr- Kate, I freaked out when the gl- the grass sword went into the, the Finn sword and just cracked and every... I just... I freaked out because that was Finn. That was Finn. That was Finn, Kate. Mm-hmm. That was Finn in a sword and that Finn is maybe dead now. Not really clear, but he's maybe dead now. And I just went, Finn's dead. That sword's dead. We're going to go back to the grass sword. That never goes well. <laughs> I just, I was, I was, it was a pain. It was kind of a painful episode. Just like I got way too invested in this Finn sword. So as soon as Finn was like, I can do some mad tricks with this sword. That is also me. She's like, no, <laughs> don't do that shit. That's terrible. But I really enjoyed the episode. Um, Amy Sedaris did a really nice job as uh, the thief princess. Um, or the princess. Bandit princess. princess. Bandit princess. Uh, was just really, really great. I liked the memory, uh, the dream perspective thing that kept flummoxing um, Finn. But I also just, one other thing that I really liked that has been a constant part of basically this stretch of Adventure Time is that Jake is increasingly oblivious to Finn's emotional needs. And I'm just really, really fascinated by Jake's struggle to mature with his brother, basically. And I think that this is something that that this stretch of episodes has done a really nice job of subtly playing, like, with the the egress thing where Jake keeps ripping off the bandage or making Finn open his eyes, and he's just like dude, no, I can't open my eyes. And he's just like, yeah, you can, poof. And so I'm really interested to see how that continues and how that eventually has to come to a head at some point. Uh, So, but no, you tell me about I Am A Sword and uh, how you felt about it. Yeah, I also really liked it. Um, I agree that stuff, actually, I hadn't thought about that element with Jake, but I think that's an excellent point and another really interesting and... uh, potent story for them to delve in with is as you grow up and mature at different rates from some of your friends what does that mean for your friendship um that can be really again potent storyline if they're willing to actually go there and you kind of have jake outgrow or have been outgrow jake uh to some extent at least for for a little bit um because he's also Jake is older, he's married, he's got kids. Is he going to mature? 
if he was going to, you'd think he already would have. Right. So No, I think that's a totally fair question. You know, that's an interesting dynamic to explore and, and, and a way to keep that dynamic fresh and interesting. Um, but no, I I absolutely agree. The I was stunned when the grass sword broke the actual you know, like the the, the jewel. I was like, wait, wait, but let's go. I like, I just kept waiting for them to undo it or like to cut to the so He like that released him, and now like we're gonna cut to him, and that fin is somewhere like floating around or something. Um, and then when we had the glow sort of from behind the sticker, who knows what that's gonna lead to? But I, I want to believe that Swordfin <laughs> is still somehow around or there. Um, but yeah, it was dark. And if not, that is a really significant lesson of responsibility for Finn to learn. Um, and a, a, a trauma to process. Um, so hopefully we'll see more with it. Either because something else is going on that we don't know about and maybe Swordfin isn't actually gone. But if he is... And I mean, either way, Finn doesn't know that. But th- this should be a really significant thing for Finn um, that sticks with him for quite a while so I look forward to seeing where they go next right and your point about it like being a sense of responsibility is so astute because it's not only about being responsible for your belongings and your possession but this was him this is about being responsible for yourself and doing what's best for yourself and treating yourself in a way that's respectful and acknowledgement of your Mm -hmm. needs self-care yeah and that's just and again, that's something else that this this stretch of episodes has been exploring, basically, is Finn's maturation and how he's coping with being the only human in Ooh, being having adolescent feelings and just all this stuff. And I'm I'm it's been such a really tight focus, aside from like a few like side jaunts, which have all been really good side jaunts, which has been the other thing. I mean like I haven't not wanted a Finn episode because all the side John episodes have been great. So it's just like whatever the show wants to give me right now, it's on a huge upswing for me. And I'm really, really excited to see where they keep going with this, at least until Steven Universe comes back. And then I'm just going to be really excited about that all the time. Well, then what wins your week in genre? Uh, uh, hands down, it's uh, easily Adventure Time and I Am a Sword. Uh, so aside from Lemonade, what won your week? <laughs> <laughs> in genre this week Adventure Time was really good but I'm, I'll give it to Orphan Black Stigmata of Progress to you know spread spread the love a little bit um, but yeah that that was a very effective and, and affecting both spellings Adventure Time um, so now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama
this week in drama, we're going to talk about the Limitless finale. Finale, part two! Exclamation point, exclamation point. I don't know how to make it, like, without saying them, no. I don't know how to convey two exclamation points. Uh, well, I, I know how to do it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> okay. Then I'm going to talk a bit about the Americans travel agents. We'll both dive in with the path, breaking and entering, and the good wife party before we round things up with Underground Grave. Whew. But first up, Limitless had its finale. How do you say this title? I say this finale part two with a shrug. Yeah. And a question mark um, instead of an extra exclamation mark. Um, in part because this was this was really safe and kind of dull and not super interesting. And it was a very weird experience to watch a Limitless episode that felt like it was from the first half of the season and not the second half of the season. I understand Bradley Cooper, Mora. I mean, there's there's a longer game that the show's wanting to play with them. So transitioning to Sands was, frankly, the smart move. But this was a really boring way to resolve it for the season. Um, oh, Kenan and Greenland are discussing the economic merits of a new Northwest Passage. We're going to scuttle that treaty for economic gain. And it's just like... Okay, first of all, kudos about the Northwest Passage thing, because this is an actual thing that as the Arctic melts, countries are going to be battling over um, sea lanes, basically. And it's going to become a huge thing within basically the next 20 to 30 years. This is going to be a thing that people are going to be talking about. Uh, so that was that was really interesting. And it would have been a really interesting episode, except it was a finale, and I wanted a hell of a lot more out of it. Um, so it was just that we're gonna stop them from this, and then we got Sands, and then Piper just magically appeared at his house with his dad, who I'm not convinced isn't kind of evil, and this is in part because it's played by Ron Rifkin, and Ron Rifkin is never not evil in some way. Sloan! Right, exactly. Um, but it's just, it was just a really underwhelming episode for me, apart from all the trippy, uh, NZT uh, effects so like a finger sticking out of a jelly donut wait beckoning brian forward it was really scary and terrible and horrible and i kind of had bad dreams about it the following night but the rest of the episode just kind of didn't click in for me um tell me i'm wrong tell me that i'm in i've 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 i had an off week tell me that i just i i need to go back and watch it again to appreciate the fun and the subtle nuance that i just completely and totally missed you're not wrong. Okay. But I liked it more than you did. Okay. So I I actually really was able to enjoy the character elements of of Brian choosing to destroy his brain to save Piper. And I think uh like and just the the way that the show, especially knowing that this could be its series finale, the way that it emphasized so strongly what makes you special is not this drug. What makes you special is why you take this drug and that you choose to take it. And you, so far, at least, it has not corrupted him the way that it has corrupted pretty much every other person we've seen take it. We've seen take it. Um, so them, them emphasizing, no, it's not about the NZT. It's about who Brian is. Um, was really, uh, I think, important. Because, it, again, it's them coming back to character rather than gimmick as the heart of their show. And that last scene we got between uh, Brian and Rebecca was, I thought, really well done. 
especially because we had watched him go through the ringer and he looked like shit through most of this episode. And like you say, those the things he was seeing were messed up. Um, so that was really all very effective. And then for me, the reason the ending wasn't as much of a letdown is that it felt very dreamlike. And the way that the actress who plays Piper played that scene and the way that she was looking at him and stuff, they could easily make that like, there's something she's not telling us. Actually, she's betraying him in this moment and it fixed him temporarily, but it's going to lead to other new complications. And like that could go a lot of different ways. And I also was sort of okay with this notion of it just on a parable or fable level, her being like the blue fairy who's come because Brian is such a good person to save him and make him a real boy again, you know, and undo this damage because there was so much personal sacrifice on his front, on his, in his part. So just like on a storytelling level and on like a fable level that, that did actually work for me, but I would have liked instead of, I mean, and I, and again, because maybe it won't get picked up, she said, irritated that CBS won't just announce what they already know they're going to do for next year. They must know by now. Yeah, um, they do. It's, re- it's really irritating. Monday. Yeah. But um, if it is the end, I, I guess then I like that they had that really light, breezy ending with the montage and everything. If this is the last yeah. opportunity they're going to have with those characters, fair enough. And if, they, if they know they're getting cancelled, or if they you know, like then then awesome but if they knew they were getting picked up and they didn't take advantage of that to do something much more interesting Mm -hmm. that's disappointing so it was sort of like a huh okay kind of ending and i think we were hoping for a much more impactful one because i think we both know that they have it in them right and i think that was the thing is that this was a very for me it just felt I mean, I like your read about the fable. I like your read about the fairy tale because it ties in really nicely to Brian's NZT fantasy about being a superhero and fighting his way through the Legion of Whom. Um, and also, yay, Tim is still out there, so maybe Tim gets to come back next season. And mm-hmm. that's also just sad. I can't think of that actor's name, and he's always going to be Tim from Justified. Jacob Pitts. Jacob Pitts, that's it. Yeah, no. So Jacob Pitts is still out there, and that's going to be awesome. He can come back and... I would I would like more Jacob Pitts on my television, but I just really I was expecting a lot more, and this felt just very safe to me in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it bothered me that after being so bold and comfortable and confident um, for so much of this season, uh, that they just kind of pulled back, the, pulled themselves back for their finale. That I just went, oh, but but. You guys, you you had such momentum, and as much as I love Brian going squad goals, and Daryl is just the best, but <laughs> I just went, but but I, I I wanted something bigger, I think, and something like just more provocative, I guess, for what may have been a series finale. Uh, God, I hope not. But yeah, so I was just I was kind of disappointed. I'm glad you weren't disappointed though. Oh, I was, but okay. just less. <laughs> less. I'm, well, I'm glad you were less disappointed. Yeah, no, instead of doubling down, they backpedaled and reset, and that's that's not going to be anything but underwhelming and disappointing to us. Um, because it's not like they set themselves up that they can do a new exciting second season premiere. Like, they're going to have to come back, if they do come back, and they want to go in a different direction, they're going to have to, like, 
start off with status quo and then have a radical departure from it. Yeah. Rather than allowing themselves, giving themselves an ending that allows for a more creative start to the next season, they're going to have to just make all of that happen in the next premiere. So we'll, we'll see. Because we, right now we know exactly what the next season starts out as, and that's a little disappointing. Yeah, that is, that is, that is. Uh, well, not disappointing at all is The Americans, which uh, had travel agents this week, and it's been all about Martha the last few weeks. Well, I say all about. There's a few other scenes with other characters that doesn't pertain to Martha, and I don't care about those scenes because I only care about Martha right now. And Alison Wright continues to kill it. I love the way that they have brought this to a head at this point in the season, that they're not stretching it out as like an end game thing. I don't think it could have worked. Um, and and just the the way we see not only Clark, uh, I should say Philip and Elizabeth interacting with and dealing with Martha and Elizabeth's read of Philip's connection with Martha shaping how she sees their partnership and their marriage and their family um, and their attempts to just like understand each other and all of this stuff is it was was really great but I also just loved watching Gad deal with the fact that his secretary for all of these years betrayed him and then realizing that it's not just like she didn't care about him, but no, she was married and all of this other stuff. So like the scene we get with Stan and with Gad, where you say, you know, there's a marriage license, there's a blood test. She was married to a KGB officer. So they, they sought out my secretary because she was my secretary, seduced her, married her and turned her against this country. And from the what we've heard, what they had heard on the phone... She doesn't want to be doing this, but I was blind. I didn't pay attention. I put her in harm's way by the fact that she was my secretary and I didn't see any of this. I didn't care enough about her to inquire enough about her to know that she was so unhappy that she would be in a position where she would be vulnerable to this. I mean, it was just really powerful. Um, so, so there's the elements of this that we would expect to be really great, which is everything with Martha and her dealing with her new situation and the decisions that, that Philip is making and how he relates to her and when he and how... He's unwilling to lie to her the way that everybody else says that he should and that maybe would be more kind. Um, that's really powerful. But but also just these other characters discovering that Martha is has been a mole and how that affects all of them and how that makes them reevaluate themselves, not just as oper- operatives, as officers in you know, the CIA, but as people. Just incredibly powerful storytelling. The Americans continues to kill it. So good. Um, but I'll leave it there. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep saying the same things over and over again. Really a uh, very strong season. Well, that's never stopped me, so you're fine. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's though move on because we are on a schedule today. Let's move on to the path, breaking and entering. My review is up at the AV Club again. Um, I like this episode quite a bit. I have two main takeaways, and then I'm throwing it to you. One, Ashley's the best. And two... I love how this episode uses touch as a through line. Who there there are very there's a very active choice to have characters touch the other other characters' hands in this episode, and that creates a touch point and comparison point throughout the episode. So first it's Cal and Sarah, then it's Sarah and Hawk, then it's um, Eddie and Allison, and then I mean I would assume there was some touching of hands at the end with Hawk and Ashley, but. Not going to get into that. Uh, I think there was a lot more than that. 
a lot more than that. Um, anyways, what did you think about Breaking and Entering? Um, I like this episode uh, a fair bit. Uh, I think my big stuff was mostly with Sarah this week. Um, I really enjoyed her going to her sister's house. And mm-hmm. you talked about touch, and that's where immediately my mind with was her invading her sister's space, basically. And going through the brownstone, uh, finding all the lotions and all the stuff, basically. That Wearing her, her lipstick. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, that's immediately where my mind went when you said touch. And that was like the big thing. My big takeaway when you said touch was that entire sequence, which I think is really great. Uh, but the other thing um, I really responded to regarding Sarah this week was, and you touched a little bit about this in your review as you were discussing how different she and Eddie were in regards to Hawk. Um, but this idea of how Sarah reflects or responds to everything through Myerism and just doesn't like see another perspective out. And I think that's just really, that's been consistent for her, but to watch it be done to ignorance basically while they're, while they come to them for help is just really it shows just kind of how still brittle um, I think Sarah feels after the whole thing at, in the premiere and how still that Sarah's trying to re- refigure where she belongs, basically, within not only her family, but probably within the compound itself. And I think that that's really interesting that she's maybe becoming more strident in her Meyerism than maybe she has been in the past. We don't know. Uh, but I think that I find that just really interesting. And then Eddie's approach of wanting to hear Hawk's perspective and his feelings about that, I think, is heavily reflective and heavily based in the fact that Eddie himself is, has not grown up in this the same way Sarah has. This is not the same. T- he remembers a life outside of Myerism, basically. And I think that his acknowledgement of that is really, really important in how he's trying to respond to um hawk's actions and hawk's uh behavior and i think that's a really nice counterpoint and you talked about this in your review to how sarah's response is very much grounded in myerism and eddie's is very much in this idea of empathy and i think that both of those concepts are really really interesting and really fascinating to watch play out um the only thing i will say as kind of a follow-up is Tell me why you think Ashley is the best. Like, I like her a lot, but, I mean, you're just, like, really gung-ho Ashley right now. And part of it could just be, like, I ended up having to watch this episode in, like, two chunks. So the through line may not have been there, which is why, like, this idea of touch that you talked about, I just went, oh, well, I need to go rewatch this episode because I missed that entirely, um, apart, apart from the scene I mentioned. So tell me why Ashley is so much the best. Because the way that she interacts with Hawk is so awesome she's so respectful she like when we see them making out at her at her place her concern is not dude it's getting annoying how you keep stop making out with me because you got all these issues it's i'm concerned for you i don't want you to keep beating yourself up and hating yourself for your completely legitimate normal healthy feelings and the fact that you won't let yourself be happy is not okay because i you may not think it's okay to like basically flagellate you know self-flagellate but I don't because I care about that person that you're beating up 
And so she she doesn't tell him you're what you believe is wrong. What she tells him is you can't keep doing this to yourself. You have to to like look at how you're feeling. It's okay to have feelings for me. That there's nothing wrong with that and you are not a bad person for for being in like or being in love depending on what you want to call it. Um but at the but she does says this and she's but she never shames him for his beliefs or for his background. She comes from a place where she can understand how parents can screw you up. And so she doesn't really blame or judge Hawk for the ways that he's different. And I just find I really like their relationship. It is very driven in respect and giving each other support without trying to fix each other. And I think that is awesome. And I also love pretty much everything she has to say, <laughs> pretty much all the interactions about Meyerism. So when she's like, dude, is your grandpa, you know, smoking pot? And, you know, like, I thought that was really fun. <laughs> and then Joy has to go be Joy all over it. Um, but we also see that at the end of the episode when, when she's like, yeah, no, this is a church. This is your preacher and this is a church. This is just like that. Let's just call it what it is. You're full of shit if you say this is not a religion. Have you listened to yourself? Not like you're wrong and bad for being in a religion, but let's be honest and then let's start our conversation from a place of honesty. And here's why I think it's fucked up because you guys are all saying it's all peace and light and happiness, but as soon as somebody doesn't like agree with everything that you say, you say they're going to burn forever in the future while you're happy in the garden. And, you know, it's just like, I, I just really appreciate her seeing her her perspective on Meyerism and the fact that while she doesn't like it and she thinks it's destructive she doesn't condemn Hawk for believing it she just expresses herself honestly about it so for me like I I just think it's I, I really enjoy that part of it I was making faces for a lot of that um mm-hmm. in part because of that last scene which you mentioned and um mainly because I felt like she's not judging Hawk but so much of who Hawk is is built into is built around and founded on Myerism. So even if you're like even this idea that for me, this idea that it's coming from a place of honesty for her is still kind of disingenuous because it's she's trying to frame this thing that she doesn't completely under that she doesn't she hasn't had firsthand exposure to until now. Um, but that she just doesn't completely like grasp how much is of this is a part of him basically. And she's just like, no, it's not any of these things. She's telling him that it's not these things. And I find that just really disrespectful. And it's just, no, you, I, I understand that you both have different differencing opinions about what this is, but you saying that this is a church and that was your, that was your preacher is just like, well, Yes, from your outside perspective, that's exactly what that is. But to frame it that way to him, I just found to be really aggressive and disrespectful and not coming from a place of saying, we're going to start this from a place of honesty and conversation. It's, you need to come and like hit me at this, you need to come to this level for us to have a discourse about this, basically. And I just find that just kind of not great. But that's how I responded to it because I mean I've been on other conversations in that in my own like life where it's just like, yeah, no, no, what you believe, um, yeah, no, that's really terrible, and uh, I mean it's nice and you're great and everything, but no, 
type of thing. And it's just, it just reminded me a lot about that kind of stuff. And it just felt, it felt much judgier to me than I think it felt to you. Oh yeah, it did not feel judgy to me at all. Or if it felt judgy, it felt appropriately judgy because every time that he they say no it's not a religion it's like "Mm, if it's not a religion what do you call it because calling it a spiritual movement is i think it's bullshit you have a you have a religious text that they adhere to you have a person who's in charge of meetings that you have in what you they call it i think they called it a chapel right because so, uh, yeah. Sarah says, he came to me when I was in the chapel praying. Like, you pray, you have a chapel, you have a person who runs your services, you have a strict adherence of doctrines, you have a belief in the afterlife or to some ex- or something like that, the, whatever this future thing is. I mean, what else do you call that? Trying to pretend, like, if there, maybe if, if Hawk had some idea, if they would, instead of just saying, no, we're not a religion, no, we're, no, he's not a preacher, he would say, here's what a preacher is and here's what Cal is and here's how it's different. Right. But there's no sense of that, at least for me, but maybe I'm just so very much in Ashley's perspective as a fellow outsider to Meyerism that uh, I'm letting that guide me. Sure. And I I think that that point about the fact that Hawk can't reasonably defend Meyerism in any real way is telling about where he what he thinks about and where he is within whatever part of the Meyerism program that he's in. But at the same time, it's just really weird to me that he can't do that, that he can't delineate between these things, since Sarah could clearly probably do that without a problem. And I think that that's maybe an issue I'm having right now with the show, is that Eddie will say it's not a cult, um, he'll say it's not, Hawk will say it's not a religion, but they can't seem to parse out what it exactly is. And Cal and Sarah probably could, but Eddie and Hawk can't. And I think it's really significant that Hawk can't. I don't think it's as significant that Eddie can't. Well, I, I think the difference, and this ties into with Sarah, Sarah and Eddie's perspectives on Hawk. Yeah. Sarah was born into this. Sarah didn't choose this in the same way. Eddie actively chose Meyerism. Like, he did not grow up with it. He was not indoctrinated into it. He found it. It spoke to him, and he bought in. Or, you know, he this is what he believes. He drank the juice. Yeah, he drank the juice. Um, Sarah doesn't trust that Hawk will do that. She doesn't want him to think. She doesn't want him to question because she doesn't trust that he will make the right choice. Eddie says, hey, I've made an informed decision, and I chose this. Why wouldn't my son, with this, given the same information, given the same, like awareness of the world you know all of this stuff and so I th- that for me really informs where they're coming from in the way that they parent um and actually I would <laughs> while Sarah and Cal might be able to give their reasons for the differences between a religion and, and Meyerism I would actually be much more interested in how Eddie would describe the differences because he's actually coming he actually has an awareness of what other religions are Sarah has never been a member of a different faith so how is she going to give an accurate accurate perspective on what a preacher is and what a you know a priest is versus what cal is and cal is so fond of doublespeak that i just (laughs) wouldn't trust anything he would say on the topic well not trusting cal is always a good idea on this show (laughs) yeah (laughs) next up is the good wife party and this is going to be our big i think disagreement of the episode because i know you really like this episode apart from the conversation we just had because well, that's more of like a philosophical discussion i just didn't yeah. care 
about the party at all. So I was mm-hmm. watching going like, because you had already said that you were you enjoyed this episode and it was a real uptick yes. for you. Um, and I was just watching this going like, yeah, it's nice to see Diane and Kurt like hanging out and I just don't care about any of these characters anymore. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to like get the cliffs notes and fast forward through this episode. So how, how bad of a good wife viewer does that make me? Oh, no, it doesn't make you a good wife. It doesn't make you a bad good wife viewer at all. Um, mainly because, like, I like I really enjoyed this episode because it had such a... So much of the good wife this season, especially recently, just hasn't been, like, really fun. And this, for me, was really, really fun because it was... It was the show, literally, in one case, uh, as they brought back Darkness at Noon, uh, the show's AMC, the show's jab at AMC and other cable prestige quality dramas that keep winning all the Emmys instead of The Good Wife, um, that the show literally says goodbye. And I felt like this was the show basically doing a big rap party for everyone. And so we got to see and have fun at a party. And I just really enjoyed the self-reflexivity of the fact that this that not only was darkness at noon basically staging its finale during the rap party but other things like it's a party celebrating a wedding and thus like a beginning of a new life but it has all these funeral flower arrangements that signify death and it's just like it's it was such a cheeky little acknowledgement that the show is over that I just couldn't help but kind of enjoy myself at all of this. So um, even stuff like Zach being like, I'm going to go to France with my my graduating college senior girlfriend and write a memoir maybe because I took a class in it. And it's just like, oh, Zach, you're adorable <laughs> and terrible and it's great. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I had a lot of fun in this episode. Um, my big critique of the episode was mostly the fact that they just decided, oh, right, we've got two episodes left. Um, I guess we better flesh out this lock case that uh, Mr. Shoe's coming at uh, Mr. Big with, and um, we're going to give you all the details on that. And I just went, all these details are really interesting. Why didn't we get all these perspectives on this so much sooner? (laughs) (laughs) And so while I enjoyed, like... Jason actually getting to investigate shit. I was just like, we could have gotten this a lot sooner and like actually cared about what was happening. And I get that there was this slow play because no one else knew what was happening. But I was very much like, but it's actually really interesting. And the fact that you're just going to basically resolve it within maybe an episode and a half, because you have two left and you're probably not going to deal with this too much in the finale. I'm very much like, you could have done this a lot sooner and it maybe I wouldn't have been so disinvested in everything and you expecting me to be invested in it now is kind of disingenuous uh but I just had fun it was a big reunion like Jackie showed up Zach showed up Lewis Canning showed up after disappearing uh Matan showed up which I loved uh because I love Matan and I half expected like Robin or Clark Hayden or Tay Diggs to show up at some point, just because we never know, knew what happened to the three <laughs> characters. <laughs> but I just, I had a lot of fun and it was nice to have fun watching The Good Wife again. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I didn't even enjoy or care about the Darkness at Noon um, parody. I mean, or I think... If I was more on board with The Good Wife, then I can enjoy it making fun of other shows. But when it's doing 
at least for me, such a terrible job of being what it is best at. I don't think it gets to like throw any stones. So, uh, yeah, I I think, I think I've just, I think for me, I don't know that the show can reclaim anything by the, I think it's just going to be like a death march for me to the end. And then hopefully after some distance, I'll be able to maybe go back and enjoy these last few episodes a bit more. But for me, the, the spark is gone and I just don't, I just don't care about these people anymore. I don't even care about really Diane. I'm like, you're fabulous. Go off into the sunset and be fabulous elsewhere. <laughs> but I really enjoyed how inappropriate she and she and Kurt were at that party. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed how much Kurt didn't want to be there. I enjo- I wanted to see the rest of Kurt's conversation with Hannah and just the f- how just sheer rage inducing that probably was for him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, any final thoughts on this episode or hopes for the last two? Um, no, because I'm basically expecting the last two to be Alicia defending Peter, which is going to be weird and kind of icky and awkward, and I'm not really looking forward to that. Mm. Well, yeah. you know what I'm not looking forward to? The end of Underground? The end of Underground. Uh, in this week, we'll, of course, we'll be talking about Grave. Well, I also am. Uh, so basically, I discovered in my reading about underground this week that one of the co-creators misha green is a spartacus alumnus and all of a sudden i was like that makes sense that makes so much sense i think this is another really powerful um really affecting episode and it can they continue to i mean it would have taken a lot to live up to the previous episode which which we love so much um and also I love feels like such a strange word for that episode, but um, but I I think they really delivered uh, and continue to build momentum from where they they had come from in that episode. And if they continue like this for their last few episodes, damn, that's going to be a powerful end of the season. Well, I mean, I, they have two episodes left, and my basic response to all of this is how um the show just does something more powerful than um tom announcing his like candidacy with a lynched sam dangling from his podium his like his balcony Mm -hmm. and i just i i I just i don't i uh, kate i i I still don't have words Yeah. To deal with that. <laughs> and just the sheer image of him swaying in that scene. And just, I don't have words for that. And how just really huge, and how bold it is to do that, basically. That image was with me all day. I watched it early in the day, and it just wouldn't, it would not leave my brain, which is obviously what they were going for. Um, it is... This episode, like, if the previous episode, if you weren't sure, this episode is the show saying, no, this is what you are watching. This is who these people are. And if you wanted to buy into this idea that Tom wasn't that bad and he and Ernestine had this relationship and blah, blah, blah. No, Tom is the kind of person who will do this. Uh, and so that I think what, I, what I'm expecting that we will get in these last uh, last two episodes is like... At some point, Ernestine is going to get out of that hole. And you better watch out. 
Yeah, at some point, but oh, I just I'm not I even if she does get out of that hole, I'm now firmly convinced that it may not matter that she, it, she may not be able to do anything. And she probably wouldn't be able to do anything. I think that's historically accurate, but I don't think that's what the show is going to do. I think I would be surprised if the show didn't go back to more of the action kind of tone that they started out the season with. So they started with this heist thing. I would be very surprised if they didn't go more towards a Django territory in the last few episodes. Well, I, I mean, that that's a really good segue to the other part of the episode, which was uh, Rosalie and uh, Cato uh, dressing, uh, stealing some clothes and passing themselves off as freed uh, to gain medicine for uh, Noah. And them basically having to con and impersonate and just all of that was just knife's edge type, really tightrope walking stuff that I really, really enjoyed and really allowed Rosalie to, again, seriously contribute to this outing because I think that there was concern in the early going about how she was going to be able to contribute to their escape. And now she's just like, oh, no, I got th- I-, I bought these guys to save our asses. And uh, then we're going to go to get this medicine by doing this. And it's just like, yeah, girl, let's do it. <laughs> um, so, no, I enjoyed, I enjoyed her interrogation with the sheriff as uh, much as I found that contrivance to be a little bit annoying. Uh, that, of course, he's the doctor's brother. Of course he is. Uh, but I just enjoyed that kind of cat and mouse game that they were engaged in. And him, the sheriff, being like, you guys are way too cultured to be those runaways, except for the fact I don't believe in coincidences. Thank goodness we had that deputy come in to save us. But I, I still just enjoyed the mechanics of them getting back to this heist and this kind of on the run, we need to do this con, basically, to get what we need to survive. And I just really enjoyed watching that. And I enjoyed Cato kind of having to take a back seat because he wasn't entirely sure what to do. Because his natural, his natural thing is to be as aggressive as possible. And that's like the worst possible idea. His natural state, uh, his natural response, I should say, is fear and self-preservation. Whereas Rosalie is much more brave. And and so that, I mean, that putting those two together for this episode is very interesting because they have, they each have things that help the other. Um, but I mean, and, and taking the time for just that lovely scene with her at the piano and yes. a moment of beauty, I think was really lovely. Um, it was, it was a really lovely beat in there. And then to have the, the doctor get all choked up and everything too. Um, again, this is this idea of Rosalie is not just one thing. She is so much, all of these people are so much, um, and, and the show's comfort playing with these different tones and they're, they, they, it feels so self-assured at this point. And yes. it's not like it wasn't earlier in the season, but even more, they're like, we're going to have this like cat and mouse thing going on in this corner of the show. And then we're going to, at the end of the episode, just when you think Sam's safe, no, this is what, this is why what they're doing is so important. There is real life and death, life and death stakes here, and this, you know, the, all the, the that racist rhetoric that we hear in this episode was all taken from direct quotes from the time period, from newspapers and other publications. So this is real intense top, a really intense topic that 
I, it's just, I just think, again, it's one of those things, it's capital I important television as far as I'm concerned. No, um, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. While also being really affecting and really well done. Yes, absolutely. And I, it's such a, such a really pleasant surprise, too, because I, I really liked the pilot in uh, the first few episodes. But as soon as they got off the plantation, I mean, they found the show found a gear, but it also really found a very distinct voice as well, uh, which I think has been really significant to its success. It's just gotten better. Yeah. And that's that's what we look to see in a first... In any show, really, but especially in a first season show. I mean... Oof. Yeah. And we're going to get a second season because it got renewed last week. What? So. what? <laughs> yep. Any other elements of the episode you want to talk about? Any other final thoughts? No. No final thoughts except that, you know, you should maybe spend the weekend catching up on underground if you hadn't haven't watched any of the episodes if you're listening to this and you haven't watched underground stop listening to this and go watch underground yeah but but be sure to come back to listen yeah. to us and jennifer talk about the oc in which a bunch of white people have problems it's important <laughs> significant problems so important which girlfriend is the ver- are the various boys going to pick it's important stuff over there at the oc it's very important. <laughs> well, what wins your week in drama, Noel? Uh, no, it's it's underground. Easily, easily underground. Uh, what about you? Oh, yeah. Not even close. Yeah. Well, well, Lemonade probably came really close. No. <laughs> the, the Americans was also amazing, but underground for me this week. That, that last image, and like you said, the, the boldness of that image was just... And they they hold on it so long. They will not give you respite from it. As he finishes his speech and we have the celebratory fireworks in the background and it's there are these roses at the bottom of that feeding those plants is Sam. Oof. That wraps up our week in drama. Few show notes here. You can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can leave us a comment there. Let us know what you thought of the week's TV. Let us know if you're watching Underground or any of these other shows and what you thought about them. You can email theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook and, and continue the conversation over there. You can find us in Stitcher. You can find us in iTunes. Leave a rating or review. You can find us in Google Play. Um, Google Play Music, I should say. You can find my writing up at the AV Club. You can find Noel's writing over at TV.com. And you can reach out to me at, on Twitter at the Televerse and Noel. At Noel RK. And now we will take a break, a little palate cleanser, listen to some Chris McCa talk, and come back with Jennifer Cation Armstrong to talk California, the OC. California. <laughs> it still hasn't left my brain. So good, so good. Okay, we'll be right back after this. Allow me to introduce you to a little something that I like to call. Chrismica. Chrismica? That's right, it's a new holiday, Ryan, and it's sweeping the nation. Hey, fellas, we got the tree. Hey. Or at least the living room. Guys, a little help. Yeah. Just, uh, save a spot for you right there. I love I love the holidays. I love them all. We didn't really know how to raise Seth. Yeah, so I raised myself. And in doing so, I created the greatest super holiday known to mankind, drawing on the best that Christianity and Judaism have to offer. And you call it Chrismica. Hearing you say it makes me feel all festive. Allow me to elaborate. You see, for my father here, a poor struggling Jew growing up in the Bronx, well, Christmas, it meant Chinese food in a movie. And for my mom over here, waspy McWasp. Well, it meant a tree, it meant stockings, and all the trimmings. Isn't that right? We're very proud. I'm not a wasp. Sure you're not. 
Other highlights include eight days of presents, followed by one day of many presents. So, what do you think? Uh, sounds great for you guys. For you, too. Hey, dip a toe in the Chrismica pool. There's room for all of us. I mean, isn't there something in the Atwood family tradition that you would like to incorporate into Seth's Uber holiday? Yeah. <sighs> Atwood and holidays is not a good combination. What'd you guys do? No, seriously, thanks, but, uh... Come on, man, there's gotta be something. My holiday memories pretty much consist of my mom drunk and me getting my ass kicked. Well, this year will be entirely different. New memories. It'll be great. Yeah, well, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. That's the spirit. Come here. Boy humbug. It's a big holiday for anyone. Yeah, I'm still wrapping my head around it. Just give him some time. Why don't we uh, trim the tree? You know what, you guys? Soon Ryan will learn the magic of Chrismica. Worry not. I will convert him. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are talking about a show that I completely missed when it was on. I had no idea that, uh, well, I knew it was happening. I just wasn't watching it. And I had no idea that it's actually apparently a really popular show amongst uh, our circle, Noel. Uh, and that is the OC. So I'm I'm a I'm a Johnny Come Lately on this one, but I'm super excited to be talking about it. And I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast Jennifer Cation Armstrong, a culture writer, and of course her her book Seinfeldia will be out this July. Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. And of course, people, uh, listeners can go check out uh, the segment we did on Seinfeld uh, at the at the website as well if they want a taste of uh, all the great Seinfeld discussion uh, to come in your book. Yes. So what made you want to talk about the OC this time? Because like I don't go like Seinfeld, uh, and of course you have your previous book on the Married to Helen Moore show. I don't and then immediately jump to the OC. So what made this one stick out in your memory? Yeah, I know. That's I was just thinking when you were doing the intro, like, yes, for all of that crossover audience between <laughs> Seinfeld and the OC, they'll all come running. Um I, you know, I watch a lot of television. It is my job. I know it's a tough job. Um, and I actually covered the OC a lot during my fairly early days when I was on staff at Entertainment Weekly. It was kind of one of my my first big shows. Like you tend to end up sort of owning a show a little when you're on staff there. And it was it was a big deal for me. It was my first trip that I took for like a set visit. I went to Southern California and I was on the set for a few days and it was very exciting. Um, and I just love the show and I've been revisiting it recently because it popped up on Hulu. So I'm, it's kind of like on my brain again. Well, this is one, of course the OC started, uh, de- debuted in 2003, 
Um, and, uh, and that is the, my seat was my senior year, or I should say mm-hmm. the, the, it was in the, in the fall. So that was the start of, of my college years. Uh, so I was busy watching Lost and Battlestar and, uh, I was certainly not going to watch a show about a bunch of pretty teens with problems, um, which I have learned, you know, if, if I'm going to watch a show, if I was going to watch a show about pretty teens with problems, um, at this p- part of my TV watching career, it had better have like vampires or magic (laughs) or dragons in my literature um and so I just sort of dismissed it and I'd never made time for it later of course I would become a big fan of Chuck which you know was also created by Josh Schwartz uh you know one of the creators here we've done Gossip Girl as well so I'm actually I've like been watching the Josh Schwartz shows in reverse order um and so when I actually Mm -hmm. did dive in with the OC this time um, I, I was aware of some of the cultural, like the big moments of the show that kind of broke through, but I don't know why I had this just sort of lingering, oh, that show, who actually remembers it? Uh, who, you know, like, why is it, who, you know, I, nobody ever talks about it. I was wrong. It was super fun. I had a lot of fun with this show. And as I discovered on Twitter, everybody that, uh, that Noel and I talked to on Twitter loves this <laughs> show, apparently. So I was totally the outlier uh, with the OC, um, Noel, I, I've I've given my confessional. I was, uh, I I had these biases against this show without having seen it, uh, and certainly didn't watch it at the time. Very glad to be disabused of those uh, inaccurate notions. Uh, what was your relationship with the OC? Had you, did you watch it in you know when it was on on the air in '03 to '07? No. <laughs> uh, no, I hadn't. Um, a friend of mine um, f- from AIM, for those of you who still remember AOL Instant Messenger, um, and who I actually met in person a couple of times, was obsessed with the show. Um, this was her go-to, like, this was her story show type of thing. So, like, she would tell me about the show, and I'd be like, well, you're just watching a soap opera. And I was just, and... So I was just like, oh, okay, that's fine. And my first year of college, I wasn't even, like, watching television. Like, I didn't watch any television for, like, two years, basically. From 2003 to basically 2005 is, like, a weird spot of only being semi-aware of stuff for me. Um, So I was aware that the OC existed. And I, unlike Kate at least, knew it was really popular. Um, among a number of people and but at the same time the fact that I hadn't seen one minute basically of the OC um, I asked Corey Barker a friend of the show and friend of mine to send me like a playlist basically of the show's episodes to watch and his response was absolutely and then it was how are you allowed on the internet (laughs) (laughs) which is a fair question for a number of reasons but in this case, it was related specifically to the fact that I hadn't seen any of the OC up to this point. But I was aware of, like, that it existed. I was aware of the insane charisma of Peter Gallagher's eyebrows. Yes. And yeah, no, exactly. And the, this is where Adam Brody went to instead of staying on Gilmore Girls, where he rightfully belonged. <laughs> So lots, lots of things I'm aware of of the OC. I just never actually sat down to watch any of it until basically last week. Well, same here. And I knew, uh, welcome to the OC, bitch. Uh, I knew about, <laughs> like, the, the, which was just terrible. Uh, I knew, Amazing. I knew the uh, upside down Spider-Man kiss thing. I heard about that. Um, and there was, 
uh, you know, and I've come to really enjoy a lot of these actors, of course, Ben McKenzie through um, uh, Southland. And as, as I mean, and I was familiar with Peter Gallagher from like Broadway. <laughs> I had Guys right, and Dolls on CD. Life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as, when, when I was younger. Um, but but yeah, I had even though I liked a lot of this cast, I just had never nobody had ever said you should watch the OC. It is a good show. And I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on why that is. I mean, I certainly do. It's it's a teen show. I mean, I think that's the biggest part of this is that every generation until now, which is a whole different think piece, but, you know, until fairly recently, every generation, every couple of years, we have a new big teen show that sort of like makes a disproportionate splash because it's for teens. And usually people then get upset because there's like sex or whatever on it. And that's sort of how they know it. Um, there's not a lot of respect for teen shows, though. Like, 90210, if you watch it now, it doesn't... I, I feel like I'm going to get, like, backlash from someone on this. But I don't think it really holds up. You know what I mean? Like, in an artistic sense. I don't think I've ever um, heard anyone argue that it does. Yeah, I think you're safe yeah, on that okay, one. Yeah, <laughs> okay, good. I, you know, people love it. And I, too, have nostalgia for it. So it, it pulls our nostalgia strings we can almost watch it. We almost watch it to kind of go like, I can't believe how into this I was because it's very silly now. The OC is a good television show. And it. I don't want to say, I always get nervous about saying anything is the first anything, but it's among the first where we see this is a teen show that is trying to also be a quality show. And I would, my soundbite on this would be the OC is the teen show for the golden age of TV drama, you know, or at least the first one before then Gossip Girl also, I think. I mean, it has its ups and downs, but just like the OC, but it is aiming to be a show about class. It's funny a lot of the time. It's actually engaging a lot of the time. A lot of the acting is good. I, it's weird that I'm saying the fact that I'm saying this, you know, so incredulously, I think is why this show did not ever get the proper credit because it's a teen show and nobody ever takes those seriously. It was so interesting for me to watch because I kept being torn between two impulses as I watched the OC, one of which was uh, I really liked the cast. The cast is, from, on the whole, very mm-hmm. charming and very talented. The young cast, um, the the older cast, also charming, also very talented. Um, but but the the I was t- keying into those teen characters, so I was torn between um, thinking that it was very well cast and being constantly distracted by how way too old they all are, with the exception. Oh God, yeah. Of Misha Barton. <laughs> and, and so with Misha Barton, even though she's not the best actor on there, she actually looks somewhat, you know, the right age. And it was so wonderful and refreshing and awesome um, that any, like, issues I might normally have had with her performance, I didn't care about because she felt so much more authentic than unfortunate bangs, young like, first season Ben McKenzie they were trying to pull off as... <laughs> In high school when he's like, how old was he? He was like 25 or something? He was 20. He was 25 or 26. I do remember it from that. The, my only my only consolation that I take in that is that when I then find myself now or even at the time 
having feelings, impure feelings about him <laughs> that I go back to, oh, he's of age. It's totally fine. Like, it's not like I'm crushing on some actual 18 year old who would look, you know, if you see real 18 year olds, like they look really freaking young. Yeah. They don't look like this. So no, no, I, I mean, I'm, it is, it's ridiculous. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just like, oh, Adam Reeser looks really great. Wait, how old is she in this? I need to check real quick. And oh, oh, kind of just barely. Okay. But not really. (laughs) Well, and part of why it was so, like, distracting for me was that I think a lot of the dialogue, the writers get pretty right. Like, like some are just being like, vomit. (laughs) Yeah. Which is so so appropriate it's so teenage high school um you know like every now and again like in the pilot um ryan has like this annoyingly lengthy like multi-syllabic kind of factoid he presents to to sandy about you know by in the next 20 years the human lifespan will be you know like this whole thing i'm like that's right that's not who this character is i've I've been watching this show for 30 seconds and i can tell you that's not who this character is <laughs> but so there are some like places that get rather writerly but on the whole like a character like seth imagine seth is also played by adam brody because he's really good in this role i think but like four years earlier how much better would this show be yeah, oh, I it's, I mean, for sure. Though, I mean, would they be as good at, at acting? As an actor, know. right. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Well, I just point to Freaks and Geeks with the, so clearly it can sure. be done by pointing to the, you know, the gold standard, but. Thank you for reminding me of that show, which is one of my favorites. So that was definitely, I mean, that too. That's yeah. why the OC is not the first quality teen show. Um, Freaks and Geeks might be the first quality teen show. And I know that, you know, if I may name drop, since I did some, you know, I interviewed some people about this back in the day. Like, I remember Josh Schwartz telling me that, you know, Freaks and Geeks was a huge um inspiration for him even though you wouldn't necessarily guess it from the subject matter but it was more about that grounding in actual life and wanting to make it more than just a dumb teen show that has one lesson every week that you know about like whatever safe sex or something well and you can see that tied to something like freaks and geeks or my so-called life where the parents actually have their Mm -hmm. own storylines that sometimes intersect and sometimes don't and the show is actually interested in them as people so yeah i mean while this is so much more like uh glossy maybe um and heightened than those shows uh you know those precursors are i can i can absolutely see that see that connection um so so it sounds like it it was sounds like it was bothered that was bothering me or like just kind of taking me out (laughs) of things quite a bit more than it was for for either of you i'm guessing yeah um well you have to understand i watch pretty little liars yeah that's true those those women are clearly way too old to be in high school (laughs) They're not anymore, but they were still for like five seasons way too old to be in high school. Um, so that that part didn't really bug me very much, in part because I kept going to Jennifer's point about, well, yeah, I mean, look-wise, they would have looked the part, but acting-wise, maybe it may not have been there. I, I just, I, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that helped me just kind of plow through that. But I'm also just used to the fact of, shows from this period and teen shows in particular just the teens not looking like teenagers i mean tom welling for god's sake oh for the (laughs) love of god he's like 40 
Right, exactly. It's just like, you have no business being in high school, my friend. None. Mm. Stop trying to convince me of this. But this was easier to swallow than <laughs> Tom Welling in high school. Um, but getting back to like this idea of no one talking about the OC and that sort of thing, I found it really odd when I started watching it and like getting into it after like the pilot episode and the second episode as well. Um, but as I started like getting into it, it was just... The fact that one of the things that just made this stand out a lot, and I think one of the reasons why it really, really clicked for audiences um, that were watching it at the time, and why, as Kate mentioned, it's still like really, really in a lot of people's consciousness, is that it's so self-aware and refers to itself using the valley, which is such a great idea and concept. So that metafictional humor of it allows them to kind of go, ah, we know what we're doing and we know that you know that we know type of thing. And so we're able to like give you some distance while you're still deeply invested in the kind of soapish type of uh, storylines that we're going to tell. And I think that that's a big thing when you're addressing an audience that's grown up on a lot of certain types of shows that they've learned to understand the tropes and how these shows work. And then the OC comes along and goes, all right, we're going to do all of that and we're going to be self-aware about it at times. Not always and not like obsessively self-aware, but just self-aware enough. And I think that that's a really significant like shift and point for the show to really drive home. And to Jennifer's point about like golden age, I'm doing air quotes because I generally reject the idea of a golden age concept, but it works within that model of that trend of shows being aware and playing with genre in a really interesting and productive way that audiences really keyed into. And I think that's why the show may have stuck for a lot of people. I know for me that it that kind of postmodern sort of self-referential self humor kind of kept me involved in a lot of ways, even though I only watched like 16 episodes and I still had a really nice sense of how the show worked. But that part of the show just really clicked in for me. The part of the show that I most identified with and that got me on board so quickly um, was actually this idea, because we've had been having a bit of a conversation on the Televerse uh, recently about um, shows that have people who ha are well-intentioned and actually like are actively good people who want to help each other who in family members who actually like each other and want to spend time together and the the how quickly ryan is incorporated into the family is something that i really enjoyed like a, a lesser show would have had um seth like see summer kind of making a pass at ryan and then here's going to be our tension between these two brothers for the whole first season, like, you know, adoptive or whatever brothers mm -hmm. through the whole first season. And, you know, me, you know, in, his instinct in the pilot is to be like, Hey, not cool. But then you know, only a matter of moments later, they've got each other's backs. Um, and, and there's just such a strong, there's just such a strong bond between those two characters. So like, I'm sure we'll get into our thoughts on various relationship elements of the show. It's a big part of the show. But for me, the 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 Seth and Ryan relationship was my gateway into the show and how quickly 
not just Seth, but also Sandy and Kirsten. Like at first, she's a little anxious, but again, they at least the episodes I watched, they seem to get over that really quickly. And these are all people who who mean well, and they have flaws, and they have faults, and they screw up. But you know. Ryan maybe find himself drawn towards the broken girl that he's trying to save, but he's not a dick when he's doing so. He may screw up, but he's never intentionally being a dick just because he's a teenager and teenagers are dealing with a lot. And going in that different direction, avoiding the easy drama of interpersonal quarrels or squabbles for no reason, um, really got me on board with this show. Yeah, I think Ryan and Seth, I think this whole show is just a love story, you know, in the platonic (laughs) sense, obviously. This is, I mean, and I think that's really, I think that was super significant. It still is to see two young men have this deep of friendship that is really the point is is pretty extraordinary i'm guessing they just sort of saw the chemistry between the two of them and just went this is where we're going with this i love that in the end they keep choosing each other instead of girls or whatever you know Mm -hmm. that they're really it's not it's not a love story about you you think in the pilot a little it might be the love story of ryan and marissa um thank the good lord it is not um you know it's really between i mean they have those great like they have a lot of troops that are that going for them in that first one like the bad boyfriend that you know whatever and like that great exchange at the bottom of the um of their long driveways where he's she's like who are you and he says whoever you want me to be <laughs> like he's doing this james dean thing and she's troubled and whatever but her troubledness gets gets tiresome, at least for me after a while. And maybe that's because I'm an adult watching it. Um, and maybe maybe that indicates my own problems that I'm an adult watching it. But um, yeah, for me, it's all about Ryan and Seth. And if you if you stay with the show, they have they like have their own ups and downs in their relationship and they like get through it in these really lovely ways. I find it very touching. I think one of the big things that and I'll reference like a late episode, which is the uh, Chris Kanakaha where they have the twin coma dream episode, again, going to soap operas. And we're going to have a twin coma dream episode, guys. <laughs> and I just the fact that Seth and Ryan basically find each other and are still immediately work in an alt-universe dream world is exactly what Jennifer's talking about. I mean, there's no clearer example of that the show is in no small part about their relationship, then Ryan realizes the best way to convince this alternate universe, Seth, is to explain the fact that he's from another universe. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, there you go. And Seth immediately goes into it. He's just like, I always knew this would happen to me. And it works. I mean, that, that helps them get through the rest of the episode. And they're friends now in the alt-universe. So when he has to leave, Seth is a little sad. He's losing his best, his now best friend. And it's just like, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it just saves all of the having to learn a lesson about acceptance and the meaning of a found family versus... By, like. It just skips over all of that. It's lovely. Well, it is lovely, but at the same time, and Jennifer, maybe you can answer this, because at least in the episodes I watched, they never explain why Ryan doesn't move out of the guest house. 
That's true. I was just noticing this because I was rewatching the beginning of season two, which is, I don't know if you guys did this part, but it's where, you know, the end of season one, uh, Ryan goes back to Chino Mm -hmm. um, to be with his pregnant ex-girlfriend and like kind of gets sucked back. Right. Like it gets sucked back. And, you know, I mean, we all know when they come back for the next season, like it'd be really weird if, oh, now this is a show about how like he works construction in Chino. No, that's (laughs) not what the show is going to be about. He's obviously going to get pulled back. But when he comes back, he goes straight for the guest house. And I was like, I had that exact thought where I was like, do they not have other like that's a big house. Right. Do they really not have other other rooms rooms for him to move into? And he never moves. I would I wouldn't either. That's a sick apartment. Like he has a a kitchen and everything. Like it's awesome. (laughs) But I I I, well I was like by season three, I was just like, why hasn't he moved into the main house yet? This is ridiculous. (laughs) Didn't bother me. I was I guess maybe just so used to we'd rather not build a new set. So Right. Yeah. It is cool. I and they have those I mean the the TV answer to this, the TV production answer to this is both that and I I have noticed that they do a lot of these quite beautiful shots, wide shots of that like and it's all glass. Yeah. And yeah. often it and it going Yeah, going back to our thing about Seth and Ryan too, one of their favorite things to do to go back to that theme is to kind of like leave them in the middle of one of their little rap sessions late at night talking to each other animatedly and then they pull back and show us show it to us without sound just them talking to each other through through those glass doors and it's it's touching and it looks great so that's why well plus it's way harder to sneak various love interests in and out uh if you have to walk past the parents bedroom way easier to get into shenanigans in the pool house uh which i think is how we can pivot into some of the other younger characters on this show um and i want to talk about summer because i hated her in season one and it was bothering me because i really enjoy rachel bilson how does it take them so long to figure her out because once they do she's great and i really liked her later on in the show when she felt like a person oh was this just me I, I hear you. I though I it's funny when you were saying that because I was thinking like, but she is Rachel Bell. Now I understand that she's played by yeah. her, but I feel like <laughs> she's clearly, obviously the exact same person as the person who's playing her. I would say she probably actually morphs more into um, closer. It's that thing that happens where like they cast somebody as as this kind of. I mean, I think she was a stereotype. Yeah, hard right. complete caricature. Yeah, um, and that was okay to some extent if if we were seeing this sort of through the eyes of Seth because because that was she was this this object from you know far that he admired from far away um but it it maybe took them a little longer than I think they were maybe a little preoccupied with um Marissa and Ryan more than than Summer I'm not even sure Summer was meant to be an ongoing character that I I I think she was was meant guest star for like season one right yeah, and I think, in, especially in that pilot, you can see she's really meant to be the caricature of this girl that, that you know, Seth wants and Ryan can get right away. And that's really the only point is she's like the typical hot girl in Orange County. Um, so I do think, I think what probably happened over time is that they, they grew fond of the actress and they got, they started moving her character closer to actually kind of just mimicking 
what the actress is like, which, you know, is a little, it's a little subtler. It's, it still has elements of that Valley girl, but it also, you know, incorporates this sweetness that you start to see later. Yeah. I just, um, they should have done better if they, if they, if they wanted a, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cordelia, I mean, Cordelia can be funny and also terrible. Um, mm-hmm. which, which this is very much in that model, but I just always have trouble when I'm watching a show and a character that I really like is fawning over some love interest and the love interest, like, why would they ever, they're terrible. <laughs> Are you, they're, te- why? And have the, you never the, loved someone or been interested in someone who is clearly terrible? Yeah, but, but that's the thing. He, he never says she's terrible and I don't know why I'm into her, but I am. He's like, she's because amazing. he's in high school. Oh, he's God. in high school and he, he has an erection. Like, that's why. I'm just, like, there, there's a lot of, better. there's <laughs> a lot of beautiful people in that town is all I'm saying. There's a lot of beautiful yeah. people. Um, By the time we had the whole like team Anna team uh, summer thing going down though, I really actually liked the way they handled that. And that's yeah. where I really started to see the distinction coming up. I love the maturity that they give both of those women when they're like, yeah. they, they, they aren't going to fight with each other. Because mm-hmm. they're not, you know, they're better than that. And I really appreciated that. So I just wanted to get that off my chest about Summer earlier <laughs> on. I was so glad when I could start rooting for her and Seth. Because I did, of course, get on board. Uh, did you guys have a relationship, other than, of course, the the Seth and Ryan one, that you were particularly keyed into? It's a good question. Not um, particularly. I, I, Go ahead. Go ahead. It, well, I, I was going to say not particularly, too, in some ways. I mean... Like, I I started to actively root against Ryan and Marissa, for sure. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but, like, Marissa's just, oh, my God, so tragic. Um, Right. She's too tragic. Like, Like, just stop moping around. (laughs) Well, it's not only that, but it was just, like, I knew she died. So I I came into the show knowing that she was going to die. So that was fine. But it was just as I was watching the episodes that uh, I was going through, I just went, why is this show treating her like a chew toy? It's endless torture upon torture so that when she finally died, I didn't feel sad. I just felt really relieved that everybody did (laughs) that Marissa Cooper's suffering was over. It was just like, oh, my gosh, she's finally free of being a drug addict shooting a guy i mean just everything bad happens to this poor girl <laughs> i mean it she is she's so tragic and and it, that was another one where i never totally maybe they just weren't great at writing teenage girls at least at first but um you know i never well i shouldn't say that i was gonna say i never got what why ryan was obsessed with her but it's like i get that the, some guys are into some people are into saving tragic people and i get that she's beautiful and looks like a model um you know but after a while i was just like just go date a nice girl which what p.s by the if you stuck with the show all the way through um you did get the reward of taylor townsend eventually yes. and i was i was very oh. into her she's like saved single-handedly saved that show toward the end um and i was very into her i was very into him being with her because you know it, I loved the more and more that Seth brought out in him 
you know, originally and then her, like he's, he's like, he has, he's such a real character to me. Like, I feel like Ryan Atwood is real and it's like, oh, it's so great how he was so broody. And then like, he found this lighter side of himself once he could yeah. like get out of Chino and chill a little. The, right. There's a, for at least for me, a big tonal shift in the show in season four. Once Taylor's more involved, like jumping from like a uh, late season three to late season four, it's just like, it feels like a different show. All those scenes with Ryan, because mm. he's just in mm. such a different headspace. And and that's actually one of the things I, first of all, Autumn Reeser is delightful. Just yes. like, yes, so good. <gasps> but yes. I think on the whole, I really like this show's, approach to its teen romances because you know time and again yes they have their forever couples but on the whole they really do present these different relationships as valid and as you know like just because a character breaks up with another character doesn't mean that one of them is a terrible person and the other one is you know faultless and it doesn't mean that the relationship they did have wasn't successful or wasn't worthwhile while it was happening so their ability to bring in different love interests for people like I enjoyed Lindsay I enjoyed Mm -hmm. uh yeah I, I liked Alex and and how that you know that character was paired up with different people. I mean, they did a good job on their very short-term relationships instead of, you know, a, a problem I think a lot of soap, soaps have and certainly teen soaps have of clearly having a forever couple and then anybody who shows up to f- fill time until the end of the series <laughs> really doesn't compare. Um, and, and they also, this goes back to the thing with the relationship with Seth and Ryan and them choosing each other a lot. I really appreciate that they pretty they pretty rarely have the characters choose this teen relationship over you know much more substantive things in their life it feels so much more honest when like when Lindsay leaves and she's like yeah I really like you and everything but we're teenagers and I should probably be with my mom (laughs) (laughs) like thank you god right (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) no it's true and I agree I think that I think that's the big I'm thinking of of shows I mean all the shows have had them like shows like Dawson's Creek where they want you to believe that you know even in the future when they 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 so rarely resist the flash forward and I think the OC did a little bit of that but um you know they they always give you the flash forward where like the forever couple is is together finally and you're like come on if I were with the same person that I thought I was madly in love with in high school trust me it would not it would not be cute it would Ugh. it would not be good at all. Like Chuck so and many Blair, no, <laughs> no, just no, just that no. doesn't happen. No. <laughs> well, I think one other relationship that I actually really keyed in on was Sandy and Kirsten a lot. Oh, actually. yay! Because um, I mean, first of all, I mean, it helps that both Kelly Rowan and Peter Gallagher are fantastic, but it's also just the fact that their relationship feels so lived in really, really quickly that matters so much so their conflicts and friction between even just their politics a little bit but their money as well and her dad and just all that stuff just feels really lived in without feeling like really it's not too melodramatic basically i mean it feels natural and that's one of the things that we've talked about a lot with like ryan it feels very authentic to what their situation probably would be especially given like Sandy's public defender and him taking in strays, basically. And I just, I, so when Kirsten was going through like her alcohol, alcoholic phase and they're just like, we're going to send you to treatment. We're getting you an intervention. And it was just like, this is kind of a big deal. And like, 
I liked how that was played between everyone. Like, Seth was really uh, kind of upset about it, and Ryan was just like, oh, no, this is the best idea. (laughs) And Sandy just kind of felt bad about it, but recognized that Kirsten needed to do this. And it was, I just really liked the sheer amount of respect that basically Sandy and Kirsten had for one another and how that came through in the depiction of the relationship that really meant a lot to me because so many times in the teen shows the parents sometimes are just not great in terms of like representations or they're too easy or they're too terrible they're never like in between and sandy and kirsten for me felt very in between and i think the same thing goes for um gosh julie who like starts really broad and then just they've by the end of this by the end of the show based on like again the sampling she felt like she had a real arc and jennifer you can probably speak to that better than i could but it just felt like she really developed over the course of this show in a really way that made a lot of sense yeah i have to agree with everything you just said um i'm so glad you mentioned um sandy and kirsten because i had the same feeling about like i didn't even think about them when you asked about relationships because like i'm like they're just sandy and kirsten they're together forever they're my forever <laughs> couple um i think they're such a great model of a, of a real relationship on television like you said they're not like perfectly in love all the time you know it's not like everything's yeah. great but um and that's what's cool about it, is they have problems but then they work through them like i hated that moment like the brief moment in season one where they're still trying to figure out what kind of show they are. And um, Kirsten is like toying with this I, sort of flirtation with Jimmy. Yeah, no, it's and, terrible. Uh, you're just in like, part I because hate it's it. Kate Donovan, but the well, other part right. because, right. <laughs> yeah, like, but anytime anyone threatened that, there's another thing later where like for a hot second, some hot lady lawyer comes along and like tries to flirt with Sandy. And any He's just oblivious. That, happened no there's like a thing you know what I mean like they do these brief like he's sort of like you know having late dinners with her at the office or whatever and Kirsten's wondering and we're wondering if he's gonna like sleep with her and she she might even like try to sleep with him eventually and that's where he finally says no but I love his ex-girlfriends come like as a client at some point I think that's that might even be what I'm thinking about Okay. Yeah. She definitely Whatever. wanted to hook up with him. Yeah. yeah so. And I just have a vision of them in the law office, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, anytime that happened though, and I think they knew it too. It's like, they knew they had to threaten the relationship occasionally just to keep us interested. But I hated, like, I was so defensive. They, they were definitely the forever couple of the OC and they should be because like, I did not want anyone else near them. And I didn't like anybody else who was prowling around them. <laughs> I did not, I, I was, I just really was. And how great is Peter Gallagher in this role in particular? Like, don't you just want him to be your dad? Like, He's such a dad. So many dad jokes. Yeah, Sandy Cohen is the best dad, and I just want him to come to my life and fix everything. Right, and for me, it's like Sandy Cohen and Keith Mars are like the best TV dads I can think of in recent memory. <laughs> so true. So good. That's so true. He is so good too oh my god um yeah i'll calm down now <laughs> well well we we've already gone significantly over our time which i'm not surprised by because this is a fun show and clearly it's one that we're all pretty fond of so i guess what i'll do is i'll throw it to you guys for any final thoughts other characters or actors we haven't mentioned or favorite episodes or favorite plots or any any final thoughts on the oc jennifer so i have two um 
One is we did briefly mention Julie Cooper and I think she's a tremendous character and Melinda Clark just clearly got this role and was like, I don't care what happens. I am hanging on to this thing by just blowing it out of the water. Like she's amazing and they could have never gotten rid of her because she was everything in this role. Um, And she really did. She had an arc. She's very, she has a similar thing to summer where I think she started on off as this sort of caricature who you hated and then you saw more and more vulnerability as time went on and she was really tremendous um the other thing that I would say is just especially the first I think the pilot the pilot like rocked my world that this pilot is so there's a lot of sort of broad moments to it because it's starting a soap opera but it, there's so much there. And I think I watched that thing like five times over the summer when I got a screener of it before it aired. Um, I just loved it. And I think that whole first season of the show was just gripping and they were throwing every, they were throwing all the plot lines at the wall. They, they did not care if they burned out of plot lines, which one could argue they did. Um, but they really were going for broken that first season. And I do think that's why people got so addicted and so excited about it and even would stick with it through its darker days later on no um so one other character that we haven't mentioned is um caitlin cooper and i will say that i did not recognize willa holland mainly because i've gotten used to seeing her in like midriff bearing shirts on arrow so i basically just recognize her by her stomach now um but i just I, I, it's, it was interesting because I basically just know her from Arrow. So seeing her in this was like, oh, okay, this, this was what you were doing in the first season of Arrow, but you were doing it way better here than you were in that show. And that was really interesting and fun to watch. Um, the only other thing I'll say about it is that I actually, even though I only watched maybe like two handfuls of episodes, I really liked the finale. I thought it was really good. Um, I, it was big on family and i thought like i thought it was bold that they did a six month flash forward in the finale but then it just like progressively towards the end with its closing montage kept skipping ahead a little bit and i really liked that and i even liked the hokiness of him of ryan seeing another kid sitting there on basically the same exact (laughs) wall looking lost like he was when sandy found him and it was just the symmetry of it all but just how well they executed a lot of the emotions within that finale. I thought it worked really, really well. And the fact that I thought it worked really well based on having seen like 16 episodes is probably a testament to how really good a, the list of episodes I was given to watch were, but also just how well that finale just worked in general, I think. And yeah, that's how I'll wrap that up. (laughs) Yeah. It is a really, I do think a really strong finale. And I was going to say, sure. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, actually, about Willa Holland. Um, I instantly recognized her. I was like, ah, you have long hair here. And <laughs> I also, it, my main th- takeaway with with that was, with her performance here was, oh, so when I really didn't like you in the f- first couple seasons of Arrow, that wasn't just because you couldn't act. It was because of other, it was because of the writing. It was because of the direction. Yeah. Because I actually really like her performance in this. And yeah. uh, so I was like, huh, okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad that I like her on Arrow now. <laughs> uh, I'm glad those first couple seasons of Arrow were more of a, more or less a blip. Um, and then uh, I have two more things. First of all, negative and then a positive. So negative, the season one finale, when we have the rich white lady telling the oh poor God. teenage Latina... <laughs> 
<laughs> that, you know, you don't have to make a decision about whether you're going to get an abortion based on what actually makes sense. It doesn't have to be logical. Sure thing, rich white lady. Tell the teenage girl to not be practical about whether she can have a baby. Dear sweet baby Jesus. Um, so there's that. But uh, we haven't mentioned the theme song, and I feel oh, like God, we need no. to. We're no, let's not people. talk about the theme song. <laughs> we, we, oh, it? It's stuck in my head still, and I want it to go away. <laughs> it's so good for this, though. Like, it's No, so it is. Perfect. I'm acknowledging that it's good. I just want it out of my head. I like I, I even just watching by the second or third episode because I already knew the song and I knew that it was the theme song for the OC, but I could already see how how if I had been watching this week to week, a I would have gotten addicted to it really quickly because of that family connection uh, between the the main characters, but also just go California <laughs> like every we week. Go. Like, totally, like, horribly, just, like, swaying, you know. It's a very so good. good pairing of song to show. It really is. Can I Can I add one moment Absolutely. of Absolutely. Go for um, it. Because you guys were talking so much about Willa Holland. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but Caitlin is played by a different actress yes. in the first couple episodes, and it is I Shailene did. Woodley. Yes. So, you know. There, there's a few people on this show that uh, would go on to do other things. You know, uh, Chris Pratt also in there. Uh, oh, more than yes. a few. So weird. <laughs> well, so who doesn't weird. enjoy a naked Chris Pratt playing the guitar? I mean, come on. Everybody likes that. Everybody likes that. Well, thank you. Um, I think that's the right note to end us on, right? I agree. I, yeah, I think agree. it, it no, feels totally. right. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online and in bookstores? JenniferKArmstrong.com has all the information you could possibly want and probably more. Um, and the and Seinfeldia is available for pre-order now on your, you know, online ordering platform of choice and will be in bookstores in July. Excellent. Thank you one more time, Jennifer, for coming on. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. 